Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but... You can make your own decisions. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about things falling apart um, and and some other stuff from time to time. I'm Robert Evans, um, and today we are going to chat once again with Romeo Kokriatsky. Um, Romeo, you are a Ukrainian journalist uh, and an anarchist. We chatted with you right before the Russian expanded invasion of Ukraine. Um, and now we're we're talking with you again now that the war has entered. Um, certainly a different phase as, as Russian troops pull out of the north of the country, pull out from around Kiev and focus their remaining unblowed up forces uh, to the fight around uh, the Donbass. Um, how are you doing, Romeo? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, it's been it's been tough. Uh, we'll get into this a little later on, but obviously, learning that um, 
a town not far from your home has undergone a genocide is not the easiest thing to live through. Yeah. Uh, And knowing that that is not even the worst of the atrocities that we're going to discover in the coming weeks and months is, is put to put to mental strain. Yeah. Let me tell you. Yeah. I don't think, I think thankfully very few people understand the experience of, of learning that a genocide has occurred next door, essentially. Um, Yep. And yeah, what you wanted to talk about specifically, obviously, when, when we talk about the act of genocide, we're talking about the massacre in Bucha, um, an exact Bucha. death count. Bucha, sorry. An exact death count is is not available right now, but I think at least 280 uh, civilians killed is the last number I've gotten. Um, yeah, that's again, the last like confirmed number, yeah. but obviously a lot of these people... Um, have been tossed into mass graves. They're lying around in various residences. It's it's gonna it's gonna be a long time before um, yeah. we're able to to come to any kind of accurate count of how many uh, residents were were killed. Yeah, or and, murdered. And for a brief overview of just kind of like what has been seen in the executions, there we have civilians, often hands tied behind their backs, uh, so they were clearly restrained. Uh, executed after having been restrained. Some of them were just left in the street. Some of them dumped into mass graves. Uh, satellite imagery from before the town was liberated by Ukrainian forces shows corpses lying in the street in the same position they were discovered in uh, when the Ukrainian military moved in, which is as solid open source confirmation of of the genocide as you're going to get with any kind of genocide. Um, so that's, that's the situation. Uh, obviously the usual crew of bad actors and, um, Russia defenders have kind of slid into the most common allegation I'm seeing, at least online is people saying it must've been Azov battalion that did it, even though they're 440 miles away, um, encircled by the Russian army. (laughs) Um, yeah, yeah. But you know, it's the, it's the, you, you, you're seeing like a lot of, kind of bad open source responses to it with people being like, well, why would the bodies, if you look at the satellite imagery, why are the bodies so evenly spaced? Which is just like, they're not. It's 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 just like people people recognizing that if you like circle shit on a grainy image and and tweet about how it's suspicious, you'll provide enough plausible deniability for other people to to doubt a genocide. You know, it's 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 the same shit we saw with Syria. There was some disgusting denial where Someone was claiming that they could see bodies being carted away um, by the Ukrainians for, you know, investigation and reburial um, that the corpses were, quote unquote, moving. Uh, You can see you can see this guy's hand move. Yeah, you're looking at dead bodies, buddy. No one's fucking moving there. And by the way, when you move dead bodies, they move (laughs) like pieces of the. What a shock. It's it's a a shock when you're driving over a street that has been churned over by tank treads. Yeah. And. You're you're transporting human corpses. Those corpses are going to get jostled around. Yeah, it's uh um definitely. I don't know. You know, we, we, I I don't want to be labor on this too much because I think we've talked a lot about how this this disinfo works. I think what you came on specifically to talk about and what's really worth getting into in some detail is um this manifesto that was published on RIA, which is a a, lar- a Russian government controlled uh uh news agency um it's this i don't know how it's a fascist manifesto yeah it's a fascist manifesto clear and honest you you can find it if you if you just google uh 
RIA publishes Russian Fascist Manifesto. The New Voice of Ukraine has a, a translation of it up um, if you want to read this thing. Uh, but it's it's pretty, pretty striking. Um, and um, the, the kind of focus of this is on justifying the denazification campaign. Um, and it opens one of the opening lines is when the theory that people are good, the government is bad, no longer holds true. Admitting this fact is the basis of the denazification party, all of its associated measures and the fact itself is the subject matter of the policy. And the fact that this came out within a day or two of the discovering of the elements of genocide in, in Bucha, um, Bucha. is mm-hmm. yeah, is pretty predominant, I'd, I'd say, like pretty noteworthy. Yeah. Uh, so I had to translate this. And let me tell you, it took um, a pretty big, pretty big toll on my sanity for a couple of days here. Um, and I'm going to be honest, as a Ukrainian reading this, this was if you have ever I don't know if uh, some of your listeners Robert, may have like been at protests, um, counter protests against um, fascist or, or far right demonstrators where they're chanting that they will murder you. This is exactly how I felt. This is yeah. this was nothing less than someone reaching through the screen and telling me that they want to kill me and everyone I love personally um, because I am uh, because I want their independence. So there's this the the kind of theme of this art, art, uh, article. The term that they use most often is denazification. And I yeah. think it really um, it is incredibly vital to explain just what this denazification means, because normally, like you and I, Robert, I think we'd both call ourselves anti-fascists mm-hmm. and we are pretty anti-Nazi. Um, that uh, I, I think that's a that's a pretty mainstream position to to not like Nazis and be anti-Nazi. So the Russians use this term denazification to someone that has no context, no idea of what it refers to beyond the obvious meaning, get rid of Nazis, sounds like something even laudable. The problem is what the Russians mean by Nazis is not what you and I or any other normal, sane, rational human being would consider a Nazi. This article does not justify uh, its, its thesis that Ukrainians are Nazis at all. In fact, um, there are there is a whole series of paragraphs um, that states that Ukraine does not meet like any criteria of being Nazi Um, to to quote a bit from this um, as horrible as it is. um, It reads, there isn't, after all, a single important Nazi party, no fewer, no fully racist laws, only their curl tailed variants in the form of repressions against the Russian language. As a result, there is no opposition and resistance to the regime. A particular feature of Nazified Ukraine is its amorphousness, imminent and ambivalentness, which allows for the masking of Nazism as a desire to move towards a quote unquote independent and quote unquote European uh, Western and pro-American path of development in reality towards degradation while insisting that quote unquote Ukraine doesn't have any Nazism, only private and singular excesses. So the and article that's... itself admits <laughs> that Ukraine is not Nazi in any way that we would recognize the term. Yeah, and it, it's basically saying that like it's Nazi. It's not. There's no Führer, and there's no race like racialist laws. 
Um, but the thing that makes it a Nazi is wanting closer union with Europe as opposed to Russia. Um, and of course, it, it it notes like the so-called laws against the Russian language, which I'm not aware of anything happening. I think what they're referring to is like uh, attempts to encourage the Ukrainian language in Ukraine. Um, yeah, there are no laws or sanctions or repressions no. of the Russian language in Ukraine. There never have been. And in fact, when I was there, one of the difficulties I had with my interpreter is he 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 only spoke Ukrainian. And so you can obviously you can speak with people who speak Russian if you speak Ukrainian, but it's a little bit like confusing. And most people we were talking to spoke Russian natively. Like it's the I the idea that it's somehow like been that the Russian language has been somehow like attacked in Ukraine um, feels very silly as someone who like repeatedly encountered the Russian language while in Ukraine. Yeah, it's 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 simply propaganda, um, and the fact is that the Russians define Ukrainian Nazism not as having Nazi values or a Nazi party or anything that we would associate with with Nazism, but in fact, simply the simply that Ukraine wants to be independent of Russia. That in itself is proof positive to the Russians of our Nazism. And nothing else. So at, when, when people hear this word denazification, what they don't mean getting rid of like far right elements in Ukraine. No, they mean being anti-Russian or being or simply wanting to be separate from Russia is itself a far right position in Russia's eyes. And that is enough to call for our um, pretty much complete <laughs> extermination. Yeah. And, you know, to kind of go into this article a little more, one of the things that I find interesting about it is this line here. Uh, the fact that the Ukrainian electorate shows Poroshenko's piece, Poroshenko is the president before Zelensky, and Zelensky's piece should not be misled. Um, I think they probably meant misread, maybe. Ukrainians are quite satisfied with the shortest path to peace through Blitzkrieg, which the last two Ukrainian presidents transparently hinted at when they were elected. I, I How... I don't understand how anything Ukraine has done could be considered a blitzkrieg um, since they never invaded I, Russian territory and, in fact, lost territory to Russia in 2014. Um, that's a weird definition of a blitzkrieg. I'm wondering if you can shed some light on what they might even mean on that, or is it just uh, just complete fallacy? What they mean is basically that Ukraine in so within Russian propaganda, you have to understand, we're talking about a completely separate universe, a, yeah. a, a different reality. So right. the way every every single aspect of what you and I know does does not apply, like th they don't live in our consensus whatsoever. So what they mean is that Ukraine blitzkrieged the elimination of Russian speakers and um, pro-Russian culture and pro-Russian sentiments in Ukraine during the year of Maidan. Um, in Russia's in in Russia's reality, Ukraine carried out a genocide against these people in Ukraine, in everywhere except the puppet authorities of the Luhansk and Donetsk uh, People's Republics. So basically, Ukraine carried out this blitzkrieg. The reason Ukraine is so quote unquote Nazified is because in the this Russian alternative reality. Uh, Ukraine genocided all of the Russians, all the ethnic Russians, the Russian right. speakers, anyone with pro-Russian sentiments. And this is what they mean when they refer to this 
this blitzkrieg that they that well um ukraine went through they quickly killed everyone who was pro us and now uh and now everyone out everyone who is left is a nazi um like the the latter part of the, this paragraph really makes that clear they say it was this method of quote-unquote appeasement of internal anti-fascists through total terror that was used in odessa harkiv Mariupol, and other russian cities so not only are are these ukrainian cities russian this quote-unquote appeasement that they're referring to is a sarcastic way of referring to their um supposed genocide of these people of of russian speakers of um ethnic russians in ukraine again that is not only untrue it's also ludicrous because everyone in ukraine is has some russian ancestry because it's a mixed country everyone yeah. is everything like yeah, the entire eastern <laughs> european region is not some ethnic enclave it is in fact a melting pot um which the soviet union worked very hard to change yeah. of one of the things I kept encountering in Evdivka, which was is still under fire today and was under fire in 2014 for an idea of like how long chunks of the country have been in. Like now it's spread all over Ukraine, but parts of Ukraine have been under continuous artillery fire for nearly a decade. Um, but I kept encountering these old ladies who had grown up in the Soviet Union and were saying like, um, I don't understand why they're doing this. They, they like, I've always considered myself Russian and, and now this is happening. Like, I don't understand it. I don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense. In, in terms of like the denialism that we've been seeing lately, um, one of the reasons I, I argued for, because we had a debate in the, um, in the editor's room at NV when we were, um, when we were looking at this piece, we had a debate over whether we were going to translate and um, publish it. And I pushed really hard um, to do so because I think there is no greater way to push back these um, claims of genocide denial that we we are seeing popping up um, across various uh, parts of um, of the Western left and the anti-imperialist left or whatever you call it. Um, and I think there's no better way to push back against these arguments than to present the Russians' own words to them. Yeah. Like, this is such an openly genocidal fascist piece um, using pure the pure logic of, of quite, like, of just fascism that is impossible, I think, to really um, say that this is, like, a fabrication or the like the russians aren't like this well they're telling you in their own words this is what they're like yeah and i think the like putting focus on this isn't this wasn't written by you know some um like far-right extremist for some minor like online site that has like a audience of two thousand like russian fascists or whatever no this was a major article published in one of the russian uh, main media outlets by a respected political scientist within Russia. Yeah, and that's that's the thing that I think really needs to be gotten across is the degree to which I think there's a desire to believe that the Putin regime is like on its last legs and that most people recognize how fucked up uh, the, 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 the political status quo is there and that support for the regime is like pretty minimal as a result. 
Um, and I, I'm not, I'm not seeing the evidence of that. And when I talked to, I just, we just did an interview with the Russian anarchist who his attitude was very much that like, yeah, most people broadly buy the propaganda. Um, it is not like the, the, it's possible that's going to change over time because again, the, the, the severe casualties Russia has taken have not really had a chance to totally filter out socially into Russia. I think people are still becoming aware of the scale of losses and it's going to take some time for that knowledge to to really circulate. Um, but I think this article represents how a very large chunk of the Russian populace are, are seeing what's going on in Ukraine. Um, and that's problematic for a number of reasons. For one thing, with this kind of logic, that we see in this article, there's not much you can't justify, right? Like there's very little that uh, if you, if people believe what's being said in this article, there's very little you couldn't do. There's very few weapons you couldn't deploy, right? That's one of the arguments this is making is that you have to, exactly. soldiers who have been Nazified um, have to be wiped out completely. Um, there's, there's no, and it's not soldiers that who have been Nazified. Anyone who has ever taken arms against yeah. Russia and anyone who has ever supported anyone who has yeah. taken arms against Russia, which at the current moment is over 90 percent, 95 percent of the Ukrainian population must. And I quote from this must be liquidated. Yeah, not not. Um, the, 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 it makes an argument a little higher up that these people can't be reeducated, so they can't even be sent to camps to gulags um they can't be made to do forced labor they must be liquidated eliminated uh and this is nothing less than simply saying well we are going to have to kill the grand majority of ukrainians yeah and i i don't i don't know uh what more like you can for the folks who are kind of on the uh because there, there's there's this tendency, I think, within the chunks of the left that are not they haven't lost their minds. They're not they don't buy the Russian propaganda. They do see what's happening in Ukraine is terrible. They see the war is terrible, but they, they still have this attitude of, well, the best thing is to end it quickly. And like, you know, we should we should push for some sort of negotiation. I'm first off, I'm saying like whatever the Ukraine as a country decides is acceptable to them in terms of peace. I'm not going to argue against one way or the other because that's not my place. But um, I don't I don't see how you can negotiate with people who have this attitude towards you um, and, and towards the existence of your people. Like, I really don't see long term where there's kind of an option for peace for Ukraine with this kind of rhetoric existing in Russia outside of smashing the Russian military to the greatest extent possible. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel the same way, and that is a very terrifying thought. It's not because... great. Like, yeah, because <laughs> my at general not... attitude towards wars is that it's best when they're over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. I have no... I have no strong desire to see to like bomb Russian cities. Well, I mean, okay, that's that, that's a little bit of a lie, but <laughs> uh, no, no one, no one, no one can blame someone living in Ukraine right now for feeling a bit of a desire for for vengeance. Even though I don't think that's particularly likely to help matters. 
Yeah, probably not. And I, I generally don't want to um, see like a world war in Europe or anything like that. But I, I really, when I rack my brains of what can be done, like how you can live with like the, these people aren't, you know, thousands of kilometers away or on the other side of the continent. They're literally the neighboring state. Um, and I, I just I, I don't have any answers of how Ukraine is supposed to move forward while Russia remains in its current configuration. Like, I, I don't see a future um, a, a coexistence of any kind that's possible when they are literally calling for our extermination. I, I think that's also kind of the question of how do we have there, there's this this phrase that you heard a lot particularly kind of in the in the post World War II period of like the need for a rules based international order. And uh, the United States was as much a part as anyone of making sure that that was never anything more than a than a friendly lie. Right. You had a couple of brief yep. moments here and there where it was attempted to be imposed. Um, Yugoslavia uh, or, well, you know, uh, uh, Bosnia being kind of a, a clear example. But it was always, you know, in between a bunch of illegal wars on behalf of a bunch of different states and illegal fundings of, of insurgent groups and all sorts of sketchy stuff and kind of culminated. I, and I, I and I think you can. We keep going back to Syria, which is an important part of like what allowed what's happening in Ukraine to happen. But the the invasion of Iraq by the United States was another one, right? This idea that like and and the things that like torture and stuff by U.S. forces. This this the fact. I is mean, that's that, what the Russian diplomats. Yeah. That's what Russian diplomats always bring up in um, in the U.N. and in other like international bodies. Whenever they're pressed on this question of human rights, they always invariably point at the U.S. and say, well, the U.S. did this, this and this in Iraq. Um, how come the U.S. gets yeah. to do whatever it wants with no pushback? And with the implication being that Russia also believes it should be able to do whatever it wants with no pushback. And obviously, like. The fact that the United States committed war crimes does not mean that Russia should get to commit war crimes. But from like a, a point of view of like, if we're looking at things from an international perspective, yeah, if the United States is going to do shit like that, well, other countries are going to do shit like that and see it as like, well, there there isn't like why why are we bound by an international order but not you? And I, I one of the things that's so frightening about the kind of rhetoric coming out of Russia is that it it shows those kind of dreams that people had in the wake of World War II, which, again, there was no like golden age after World War II. The United States went right to regime change in Africa and Latin America, all sorts of fucked up shit. But it shows that like any kind of international hope of something like that ever existing has uh has fallen apart. We are we are if 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 people want something like that and I do believe that some sort of rules-based international order and and I'm not talking about like UN global government, I'm talking about broad-ranging international agreements that for example, you don't get to fire chemical weapons at civilians, you know? Like um I think that would be nice, a nice thing to exist and I I think Part of what we're seeing here is that any chance of having that has kind of been reset to zero. Um, not that it was ever a reality, but it, 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 I think the kind of I think the rhetoric around the fact that that ever existed has completely dissolved now. Um, and I, maybe that's not 
like particularly bad because it's bad for people to believe something exists when it doesn't because that that international order never did really exist. But um, I I think what we're seeing here is kind of the final collapse of any belief that uh, there's an inner there are international standards of morality and behavior for states. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of reasons why um, Ukraine's President Zelensky gets a lot of props from from a lot of people right now. But one of the things that has absolutely that I personally rate as absolutely as the kids say based <laughs> in recent days was Zelensky's address um, in front of the UN where he called them basically cowards if they don't kick Russia out and they can't even enforce their main um, their main goal, which is peace. Um, then they should dissolve. And honestly, yeah. I don't see any any issues with that argument. That seemed, yeah, completely rational. What What is the point of this organization if it cannot even do something as simple, or not simple, but if it cannot do something as straightforward as punish the perpetrators of genocide? Yeah. What, that, what exactly is the point of it? That's exactly kind of where I am, which is like, why are we, like right now we have this issue where like, after Russian evidence of Russian genocide was uncovered, Russia set to the the UN the human rights uh, what you call it um, that they are a, a human rights council yeah human rights council that they're a permanent member of and like it, like basically filed a complaint against Ukraine for doing the genocide that they did um, and uh, you know there's talk about we, we we could dissolve and reform the council without Russia we could kick up like there's there's options I guess in a parliamentary sense, but broadly speaking, when one of the people sitting on that council has is in the process of carrying out a genocide, which they are justifying in this way through their through their media organs, what is the fucking point of having that? It's just like it was like the night of the invasion. I, I sat and I watched everything happening in the UN. Um, and my my thought the whole time as like every all of these international representatives were like, you can't do this, right? You have to stop. You have to stop like trying like begging for there to be some sort of peace and Russia just going ahead and doing it. It was like, you know, what we what we saw um, it, it not dissimilar to some of the shit that happened in the lead up to the Iraq war, where it was like, okay, well, a lot of people agree this is fucked up. I guess that doesn't mean anything. Um, and it didn't mean anything. Uh, and, uh, that's why have it like, why, why pretend that it means anything? Um, I guess that's where I am. I mean, it's, it's the same um, to draw a parallel to, to U.S. politics, it's it's the same as um, like the, the the Democratic Party during the Trump era saying, oh, Pre Mr. President, you can't do all of these obviously legal things you're doing. That's bad. You should stop. Yes. Like <laughs> here's here investigations that prove that you're doing the bad things. Please stop, Mr. President, with all you due violated respect. the emoluments clause. OK. <laughs> <laughs> like okay are you gonna enforce are fuck? you gonna enforce any of this like yeah. without enforcement all of this con condemnation is literally just noise it doesn't react it doesn't result in anything in the material world that will have an effect in curtailing or restricting this behavior now or in the future and if you cannot do that then uh, what i like to call it what you have is a job program for yuppies yeah. Yes. Yes. An international rules based order. I when I was in 
Iraq during the war against ISIS and hanging out primarily with not just Kurds, but like Kurds who were natives of Mosul. Um, when we were kind of back in Erbil away from the front, the number one organization, the number one group that they complained about was not the United States, nor was it ISIS. It was the United Nations who were generally viewed to be a bunch of like they they saw them the way like people see like trust fund kids. They were a bunch of rich assholes tooling around in Land Rovers, staying in nice hotels and burning money on fucking bullshit. Um, and and that's I don't know. It's so the idea of the United Nations as what it was supposed to be, which is like, yeah, we should things like what the Nazis did shouldn't be allowed to get nearly as far as they did. And perhaps if all of the nations were sitting together and saying, well, that's bad, right? We don't want people doing that. Um, maybe some of these bad things would stop happening. Um, and what it has turned into is, yeah, it's a jobs program for fucking yuppies. It's it's not that there aren't individual things within the UN. I've certainly been to a lot of places, particularly refugee camps that had infrastructure because of UNHCR, even though that's a very flawed organization. Um, I can't deny that a lot of people got access to some basic survival gear that was necessary because of UNHCR. Um, U United Nations humanitarian crisis relief. Um, but overall, it's just, it's nothing. You know, there, there was, a, there's a really, I think my favorite piece of graffiti ever, um, which was spotted in um, Sarajevo during the Serbian encirclement and, and shelling of that city. Um, and it's a, a, a spray painting of UN in the style of the UN's logo. And then underneath it, United Nothing. Um, and, and that was the attitude of a lot of people in the city as they like watched the UN bicker over what was to be done about the fact that an army had surrounded a city full of civilians and was pounding high-rise apartment buildings with artillery and tank cannons all day long. Um, Man, that sure sounds real familiar. <laughs> it's a good thing Robert, that never happened I, again. I, I, I don't know I what you're talking that, about. That sounds... <laughs> um, but I mean, yeah, it's... it's... Anyway, um, Romeo, is there anything else you wanted to get through today as we stare at this thing? This bad thing? Honestly, I just... <laughs> As much as normally I would encourage people to not pollute their brains with with fascist agitprop, um, yeah, in this case, I would recommend people read through um, my translation at uh, the new voice. If you don't trust me for whatever reason, you can pull up the original and Google translate it, machine translate it yourself. It'll be a serviceable translation and just read it for yourself um, because I want to make it very clear that Russia is no longer simply like some hyper-capitalist kleptocratic oligarch state. It is literally fascist. It, it is using fascist rhetoric and fascist techniques to eliminate an ethnic group it considers to be inferior to its own um, in order to take its land and resources for itself. It is, there is no greater distillation of fascism on this planet right now than the Russian Federation. Yeah, they are, um, they are doing. And them I really cleansing. would like people to understand, especially if you consider yourself anti-imperialist or anti-fascist or anything. The Russian Federation is a fascist government um, on the level of Nazi Germany, and it is attempting to uh, to 
literally this article is called is called what shall we do with the ukrainians yeah um the ukrainian <laughs> so if that, question if that doesn't it's give it's, you a it's they're right asking there. the ukrainian question you know um and this article is proposing a solution to the ukrainian question so again um mostly that's what i would like to leave uh your listeners robert with <laughs> an understanding um and again you don't have to trust me you can go and read this for yourself um that the the greatest fascist threat on this planet right now is not the united states of america as shocking as that may sound um and as hard as that may be to buy uh it is the russian federation and it is right now trying to uh genocide the country and the people that i belong to yeah um so i don't know uh, maybe make a note of that folks <laughs> put that in your in your mental rolodex um it's uh i don't know i i uh, i hope you continue to stay safe i'm glad your area of ukraine is at least less under under the gun than it was earlier in this war um i'm glad broadly speaking that uh the Russian Federation has bitten off a hell of a lot more than they were able to chew um, and now are doing their chewing without nearly as many teeth. Um, and yeah, I hope that process continues and I hope uh, the siege of Mariupol is lifted. Yeah, thanks a lot. I really appreciate um, letting letting me make an appearance and <laughs> um, going through this with me. And uh, yeah, I think we yeah. share the same hopes here. Yeah. All right, everybody, that's the episode. Go, go away. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. 
Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. That's a horrible way to begin. It could happen here. That's how we start a podcast. I'm Robert Evans. Podcast, things falling apart, uh, put them back together, all that good stuff. Co-hosts here today, Garrison Davis, our, our our buddy Chris, and of course, the great St. Andrew. Andrew. Blessings take, be upon you. Take it you. away. <laughs> take it away. <laughs> good morning, and mm-hmm. in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Wow. Speaking wow. of the Truman Show. <laughs> Sol- solid reference. Well done. Thank you. I want to spend today's episode discussing a concept that has been brought up in the work of James C. Scott and Christopher Ryan. Okay. That's the idea of human domestication. And before people start clicking off, I'm not going to go all and prim or anything. <laughs> you know, it's just, I think it's an interesting thing to think about. I think that Scott explores it in a very interesting way in chapter two of Against the Green. And so relating it, I guess, to the Truman Show, because, I mean, why did I bring it up? Truman lives in a suburban, picket fence, American dream dome of a world that's meant to keep him, you know, contained and content and ignorant about the fact that he's on a TV show. Truman is trapped in this world that he cannot conform to but he can't escape, at least initially. And so you could tell that, you know, there's something wrong and he's probably felt that way for a long time. It's only over the course of the movie that he develops a sufficient awareness of his condition to leave home and become a true man. Thank you very oh, much. I'll be here all week. <laughs> all right. All right. Good episode, guys. What, a, what an episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and... Humans, like Truman, have been stewards and cultivators of the natural environment for a long time, right? We're not the only creatures who do that, by the way. I see a lot of people who see who kind of like adopt this assumption that humans are just like imposing our will on the environment that is otherwise unscathed by our presence and all that. And I mean, yeah, we do a lot of very, very terrible stuff to the environment, but... 
a lot of our actions are also beneficial and we're not the only creatures to shape and sometimes harm and sometimes benefit the natural environment. I mean, beavers, elephants, prairie dogs, bees, ants, termites, and not to mention the networks of trees and other plants that all manipulate their environments to suit them and their comfort and their survival, you know? But there's no nature as we know it, as we see it, um, that sort of untouched wild idea without the activities of humans. You know, humans have been planting seeds and tubers, shaping the evolution of many plant species, burning undesirable flora, weeding out competition, pruning, thinning, trimming, transplanting, mulching, relocating, bark ringing, coppicing, watering, and fertilizing. And for animals, you know, we have hunted even selectively, you know, spared females for reproductive age, or hunted based on life cycles, or fish selectively, managed streams to, pr- to promote spawning and shellfish beds, you know, transplanted the eggs and young of birds and fish, and even raised juveniles in some cases. That's kind of how we ended up domesticating a lot of animals, and I'm going to get into that. So through fire, through plow, through hunting, through a whole array of different activities, humans have domesticated whole environments. You know, well before, you know, the full, the first societies based on, you know, fully domesticated wheat and barley and goats and sheep. The spectrum of subsistence modes that we have utilized, whether it be hunting, foraging, pastoralism or farming, have existed and complemented each other in a sort of harmony for millennia. And I mean, those of you who have read Dawn of Everything, you kind of see that picture coming into shape as it progressed through the book. But of course, James C. Scott also discussed it years before in Against the Green. So as he says, enter the Domus. Just as we transformed our landscapes, we transformed ourselves. The Domus was a unique and unprecedented concentration of tilled fields, seed and grain stores, people and domesticated animals, and hangers-on like mice and rats and corvids all co-evolving with consequences no one could have possibly foreseen. You know, dogs and pigs and cats, all of them, their entire evolution was shaped by their relation to this Dumas. And humans are not the exception. Um, Of course, there's some animals that are easier to domesticate than others, which is why you don't see people commonly riding or herding zebras and gazelle. Um, They don't make the best cattle or ride um, and probably knock your brains out if you tried so (laughs) it's probably best to stick to the ones that we have sort of co-evolved with like you know llamas and goats and sheep and pigs and over generations you see that domesticated creatures unlike their wild counterparts develop a level of submissiveness and a decreased wariness of their surroundings right so that emotional dampening is basically a condition of life because when you're in that domus, you know, you're under human supervision, that instant reaction to predator and, you know, prey, they're no longer the most powerful pressures because you're in this sort of cultivated environment. Your physical protection and nutrition is more secure than it would be in a more wild environment. So a domesticated animal is less alert to its surroundings, less aware of its surroundings. 
than its cousins in the wild. Um, and we could see as well, you know, with human sedentism, there's also been, you know, a reduction in mobility. Um, and that, of course, had consequences for our health. To be very honest with you, I was actually kind of concerned about covering this. And I was trying to figure out a way to cover this um, in a way that doesn't make me look like I'm trying to, like, retire into the deeps of Amazonia or something. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but I just, I find it interesting to think about how environments shape us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you can think about these things with, without becoming a hermit and uh, hiding in the woods. As, as, as attractive as an idea as that may be at times. <laughs> well, yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, like, I have this, like, kind of canon in my head of, you know, like, the, the whole idea of multiverses. Yeah. I figure somewhere in the multiverse is a version of myself where I've retired into the forest and gone through this whole kind of, like, anime training arc and emerged as this like one punch man beast of a human. <laughs> I would I would I would also like to be in that timeline. I think that would be very interesting. Yeah, like I train so hard that all my hair falls out and I just <laughs> I'm able to snap trees with just a breath. It's like, yeah. Might be the 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 quintessential wild man. That's Yeah. And I mean I'm sure there's also a multiverse version of me where I'm president or something i don't know it would be pretty interesting to see like actually be kind of cool i just had an idea of like this um this team of versions of oneself that team up to like fight the evil versions of themselves across the multiverse it's kind of like kang the conqueror except i think in most versions of the multiverse he is evil Yes, um, I have. I've definitely, I've definitely read that comic before of the good ones fighting the bad ones. I mean, the injustice yeah. comics and video, video games are pretty, pretty, pretty big, pretty big staples of that genre. Yeah, 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 yeah. But of course, in, in injustice, it's different characters. Whereas, it'll be interesting to see like a cast that's all just one person. Oh, just like the same dude. <laughs> the exact same person. <laughs> the exact. But same they dude. they all grew up in such different environments, even though they share the exact same DNA. They're like different people. I think it'll be an interesting commentary on society. Because we do live in one after all. We do live in a society. <laughs> for better or for worse. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, like I was saying, you know, environments shape us. We shape environments. And to me, we need to start shaping our environments again. So we could either shape up or ship out of existence as a species. Right? Um, you know, because the way the trajectory we're on is not sustainable. Um, so we can see, of course, in this transition to the Domus, um, this sedentary, green-growing sort of community that, you know, in archaeological studies of the bones of the inhabitants, you could see, like, repetitive stress injuries shaping their bodies. You know, like, the skeletal signatures of, like, grinding green and you know like uh cutting and sewing and kneeling and bending and moving in you know very repetitive ways you know and of course with these concentrations of people we also see like 
epidemics and stuff and parasites starting to fester, not just within humans or just not just within species, but also like cross species pathogens and stuff. Yeah. You know, and so as we all on this kind of same arc, sharing this microenvironment, sharing our germs and parasites, you end up getting more and more brutal versions of like wild diseases, you know, because they basically go through the the iron gauntlet of, you know, like the, the, the disease Thunderdome, where only one could come out as victorious. And so they battled out and became these more refined and more severe forms, which is why you see in Europe where they had these high population densities, the, the diseases that developed there when they were introduced to the quote-unquote new world, you know, it really ravaged the population that didn't really live in that level of density. Not to say they didn't have cities, because they did. They had cities and villages and collaborations and, and such of people spanning across like large areas. But it wasn't organized in quite the same way. Of course, I'm generalizing quite severely, but, you know, it's two whole continents. <laughs> yeah. Um, we also see that, like, nutritional stress starts to develop in the bones and teeth of um, more, quote-unquote, domiciled humans. Um, you see, like, iron deficiency anemia in people whose diets were consisting increasingly of grains. And, you know, as they settled, you know, their diets became narrower, you know, less variety um, in both plants and proteins. And so that ended up leading to, you know, like declining tooth size and a reduction in stature and skeletal robustness. And of course, this change in like our physiology and dimorphism as a history searches like a lot further back than just the Neolithic, but sedentism and crowding definitely left an immediate and legible mark on the archaeological record. I do find it interesting. Um, I read this book, uh, I think last year, called Botany of Desire. And in it, the guy, um, what is his name? And in it, Michael Poulan talks about how the plants we thought we were domesticating domesticated us too. You know, because if you think about it, you know, you up in the garden, on your hands and knees, day after day, sun and rain, weeding and fertilizing and untangling and protecting and reshaping an environment just to suit your little tomato plant, your little potato plant. And I mean, the plant kind of has it made, you know. Um, they don't have to worry about the sort of things they would usually have to worry about outside of the domus, you know. You are there to make sure that their competitors are weeded out. You are there to make sure they get all the nutrients they need. You are there to make sure that no insects and stuff come and like ravage them. And you even help to fertilize them as well. And so, you know, it's kind of like, I want to say, a mutual relationship. Because as, you know, these domesticated plants have continued along this path of domestication, a lot of them can no longer thrive without our help. And in the same way, you know, we can't just 
not go on without them. You know, we also are dependent yeah. on like a handful of domesticated yeah. cultivars. Like we can't just suddenly switch and just be like, oh, we're not going to grow wheat and corn and potatoes anymore. Yeah, so, I mean, that's been the foundation of our diets for too long now. That's what, you know, most of our food production, well, actually don't have percentages. I won't say most. I'll just say a lot of our food production is like centered around that. And so, um, you know, we can't just jump out of that. Especially with like population increases, we just have grown increasingly reliant on a few uh, like grains and cereals um, and starches. So yeah, we do, we need them more than they need us in a lot of senses. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because I mean, a lot of them, they do still have like wild counterparts that can always, you know, take over. It's just the wild counterparts are generally less appetizing yeah. than the ones you've gotten used to. I'm sure a lot of people have seen that picture of the different types of bananas out there. Um, or, you know, the different types of corn out there. Um, of course, there are a lot of corn species that are edible because, you know, they were cultivated in Mesoamerica. Um, I would like to try them because the corn that I've grown up with, gotten used to, I'm not sure what it's called, but I don't like it. Um... I, th- I find the, the texture and taste of it to be kind of, for lack of a better word, revolting. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, like, and I've been this way for like a long, long time, right? Like I, growing up, used to be refusing to eat like an entire plate of food because it had corn in it. I didn't like <laughs> corn. I know people used to point out the irony in the fact that I would readily eat like corn pie or I would eat popcorn or I would eat, like, cornbread. Yeah. But to me, it's, it's not the same. <laughs> you know? Like, corn on the cob and and stuff, is, it's, it's not the same. And so, I, like, I've tried some some different types of corn. Like, I've tried um, those kind of, like, soft baby corns that you get in, like, soups and stuff. Oh, yeah. And those are delicious. You know, I, I, I wouldn't set your sights too much on those various corn varieties because one of the oldest ways of eating corn before we had really nice soft kernels one of one of the oldest ways is, is we would we would take we would take the the hard the, the the hard corn kernels um pop them inside a inside like a frying pan to make the starch expand then crush that up and mix it with like a liquid to have a very disgusting starchy gruel and that was the way that we ate corn for a long time, and eventually that was what? able, you know, eventually we were able to like turn yeah. it into like um like tortillas and stuff. But for a long time, it was just kind of corn Wait, gruel. What? what? Yeah, it's yeah. Pretty gross. This was this was a major Seriously? problem. This was a major problem during the Irish potato famine, because in short, the potato crops failed, um, and so the British government imported a bunch of what they called Indian corn at the time, which was corn grown in the United States. Um, and th- this was even though Irish people were growing plenty of corn to feed themselves, but that corn was being exported. Um, and the Indian corn was seen right. as it was harder, so it was seen as of lower quality. So they had to develop a bunch of methods of grinding it down. And w- eventually the government was just like, hey, just soak it for like several days and then boil it in water for hours and yeah. add some milk or some grease if you have it. And one of the problems disgusting. it caused is that like the Irish people were starving to death. 
And because well, yeah. when you're starving to death, your your stomach is not as hearty as it is when you're not starving to mm. death. And so the corn, even after being boiled, would cut their stomachs Ooh. and there is severe lining and cause, like, in some right. cases, people yeah. would, like, die. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, C- corn. Not- <laughs> <laughs> See, I could, I could add that's my reasons to despise corn. <laughs> like anti-Irish violence. <laughs> I'm gonna. I, I will briefly rant about corn subsidies because I don't think I've actually done that on this show yet. Oh, we could talk. There we, we go. Could do a, we yeah. could do a whole episode. But on I mean, corn I think subsidies. There's there, there's there's a, there's a thing about that'll be high traffic, Domus. That's like, <laughs> like in, in terms of sort of domestication, in terms of human domestication, you know, and, and in terms of the the extent to which we're being shaped, you have to be, I think, very careful to make sure that. You're attributing agency to the thing that actually has agency because there's there's a tendency to sort of attribute stuff to, you know, okay, well, this is just the way the technical process works. And because this is the way the technical process works, here are the social structures that inevitably result out of it. And that's true to some extent. But, you know, for example, like if, if we're talking about like who's domesticating whom, we look at corn. It's like, well, yeah, okay, so we grow an, grow an enormous amount of corn, but it's not because of sort of like – like that that's the the reason we have so much corn is entirely political it's entirely about the fact that like there's a corn lobby in the US that is enormously yes. powerful and because of the way the senate works and because of the way sort of like the, the primaries work uh you have to be pro corn yes. and this means that the american corn industry has billions and billions of dollars of subsidies that like this is this is like the only thing every economist across the entire political spectrum agrees on Yes. Like you, you will you will get like the Heritage Foundation agreeing with like Marxists who are agreeing with like yep. uh, like the, the standard liberal comes. Everyone agrees this is awful. The free trade people agree with this. The anti free trade people agree with this, and it just sticks there because of you know because 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 of a, a very sort of a, a very contingent set of political processes. And I think that that's something that's important to keep in mind when you're thinking about stuff like domestication, which is that like. Yes, on the one hand, that it, it is true that you are being shaped by the production process, but it's also true. Like for example, it, you know, if you go back to, to to the women in the story, who you know, you you can see in in their bones, right, that they've been sort of like bending over, like husking crops and stuff. Well, it's like well, that, that it, it it's true to some extent that that's that's because of the production process, but the production process works like that because of social reasons. Like okay, like yes. why is it women doing this work, right? Like there's right, yeah. there there's always simultaneously sort of human constructed social systems operating at the same time as you have these mechanical systems and people love to attribute all of it to the mechanical systems in a way that loses you know it 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 naturalizes things that are bad and could actually be changed and loses the capacity for sort of well I mean, yeah i mean so our, our sort of culpability in both the fact that it could be different and the fact that we do it this way yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it, it's still. I think it's still important to, to like think about like how reliant we still are on it as a resource Definitely. in terms of like maize and like you know corn syrup and like getting like glucose. Get like like it's so we rely on it for so many facets beyond just eating like corn on the cob. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. So, and like, yeah, it's kind of it's like it's like a it's like a it's like a figure eight infinity loop here that we've kind of we've we've kind of like tied ourselves into a knot. Um, yeah, but it's yeah. like like a lot of this stuff also has to do with the fact, like you know, like part of the reason that there's that we use corn syrup is there were like taxes on sugar, and you could get you could yeah, get around. No, and, abso- and this, this has all these all these like yeah, there's all these sort of feedback cycles of like 
we become dependent on something because of a social process, but now we're dependent on the physical process. And it's, yeah. I, don't I mean, know. you can, you can like tie this into the idea of like, once you switched over to large scale agriculture, we need to kind of have some body that, that governs how it works because now we're no longer reliant on smaller, more like individualized farms or forest farming. We're instead reliant on a bigger, you know, a, a, like a bigger stake in the land. So if that fails, we're all more in trouble. Now, agriculture does not equal sieve. That's not that's not an actually sound, um, anth like um uh, like anthropology. Like if, if if you look at like anthropology, that's actually not a super sound argument. I think you can yeah. read the dot of, you can read the dot, yeah. the, 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 the dot of everything they, that make they make that point pretty clear. But still, when you do have a, when you do have a large population re relying on very few like um very large crop like 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 of only a a small diversity of large crops then there is a lot there's a lot there's a lot more stakes on it so you're gonna you know there's gonna be processes that are gonna have like authorit authoritative hierarchical elements to help organize those crops so that they we don't get you know famines which of yeah. course if you look at um, maoist china you can see that worked out very well <laughs> yeah and i should note for the record when we're talking about the Irish potato famine, that a lot of people didn't die because the government imported corn, which they stopped doing after the first year of the famine because of Trevelyan. Anyway, we're, we're, we'll be doing an episode on the potato famine. I didn't want to completely shit on the corn that was imported by the government because yeah. it was critical. It's just also eating corn doesn't historically, as as was brought up <laughs> earlier, eating corn historically does not mean what you you think about. <laughs> now yeah well and, and, and you know we'll, we'll, we will also do things on on the mao famines and part of that also was that the centralization of agriculture was a f like epochal disaster in a lot of ways that took like uh, decades to recover from which Indeed. yeah is a is a fun time yes and when chris says a fun time here he is not being <laughs> literal for those in the audience who are wondering <laughs> thank you th 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 thank you andrew for that clarification i was i was slightly i was slightly confused yes yeah, he, yeah, he is he is slash g he is not slash srs yeah i mean it, it, it occurs to me that I, it, I i'm not sure i've ever gone back into the records to see if anyone in my family died from the famines i know people died later i don't know if people died specifically from that which is a good time Zay. Again, yeah, right. when, when yeah. Chris says a good time, <laughs> what, what they actually mean is not a good time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, back to against the grain. Back to against the grain. <laughs> so as we're talking about, you know, this reliance on this one staple, whether it be corn or grain or any cereal, really, it kind of brings to mind, um, and also when we talk about the centralization of farming and how um you know we've grown to be so reliant on these single things and not only that but less people know about the processes that go into our food than ever before um we see kind of like as time progresses um and as james c scott points out hunter gatherers you know they had this host of natural rhythms that they had to observe you know they had like the movement of herds, the seasonal migrations of birds, you know, the resting and nesting places of fish, the cycles of a whole host of different fruits and nuts. Um, and if you, in the Caribbean, you would know about things like, you know, mango season and plum season and chenet season, all these different seasons at different times of year. Um, 
And to keep track of all those, plus several more because they had such diverse diets. I mean, the way to track the appearance of, you know, different mushrooms, um, the locations of different types of game. You know, it's it all these activities they require toolkits, right? You know, different techniques that have to be mastered, have to be understood, have to be shared from generation to generation. You know, they also, in addition to that, you know, these foragers, they had the ability to cultivate, you know, lots of different stands of, you know, cereal. Um, they had the different tools. They had to know how to make sickles and, you know, um, what do you call those again? Slingshots and blue dots and all these different tools sort of used. Spears, arrows, and um, they also would have had to recognize the seasonality of sometimes different ecosystems. You know, they might have been crossing over wetlands and forests and savannas and arid environments. And so as they they had to understand these, um, these rhythms and they had to be generalists and opportunists that could take advantage of these different rhythms, all the different episodic bounties that nature may provide. Or rather not provide, but, you know, bring their way that they would have to kind of fight for in some cases. But they have this sort of metronome, right? Farmers, on the other hand, you know, as we sort of move to that sort of farming dominant, sedentary sort of way of life, you know, you're largely confined to this one single food web, right? Your routine has a particular tempo. You still have to observe, observe, you know, different seasonalities and different movements, but it's a bit more limited. You know, you have a handful of crops that you have to bring successfully to harvest every year. And I mean, it's complex. A lot of things you have to look out for, whether it be, you know, diseases and pathogens and, you know, different insects and, and pests that may um, come at your crops. You know, you have to look out for those different things. But it's usually uh, closer, less expansive um, range of activities, at least in comparison to hunt-gatherers. On the other hand, farming and the nuances of cereal grain farming are far more complex, require far more skill and a much wider range of knowledges than, you know, working on an assembly line, you know, um, as I believe Adam Smith points out in Wealth of Nations, you know, you have all these people on this assembly line making pins. But Alexis de Tocqueville asks, what can be expected of a man who has spent 20 years of his life putting heads on pins? You know, there's sort of a restriction in terms of, a contraction in terms of the range of knowledges and expertises that, you know, one can be expected to take on. Um, and so I guess that kind of links into like my whole idea of anti-work. It's this idea of moving outside and, and beyond this kind of restriction to like one or two or a few uh, rigorous activities that you're expected to do for the rest of your life. And more so opening people up to exploring a wider range of knowledges and expertises and experiences and practices that, 
you know, they can weave into their everyday life. So rather than, you know, just one minutely choreographed routine of dance steps, you know, there's a bit more expression, a bit more freedom in terms of, you know, how we live, in terms of how we work, in terms of how we educate, um, in terms of how we build, um, how we socialize, um, being able to sort of not just march to one beat, but sort of generate a cacophony of music. Absolutely, because I think no matter whether or not you own a share in the pin-making factory, I think you're still <laughs> going to face alienation from your environment by just doing the same repetitive task eight hours a day. Like, I don't, I don't think that's actually much better. Uh, honestly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And it requires transformation. And so for those who haven't seen, you know, I did a video on anti-work, sort of discussing it. So we can check that out when this comes out. I suppose I just want to point out that right now we live in a society <laughs> that, <That's good. laughs> um, that is governed by institutions that often demand behavior that conflicts with our innate capacities and predilections, you know, the millions of years of us living in these, you know, cooperative, social, sharing environments, you know, where communal and individual um, rights and and such were, were valued and respected. I mean, to sort of draw back to the Truman Show analogy, it's almost as if, you know, we went from living in the world to living in a zoo of our own making. We were just being, well, I guess we're watching ourselves in this zoo. Yeah, it's it's like the zookeeper who lives inside the zoo and is also the attraction. <laughs> exactly. And And so I think that while obviously we can't switch back to like foraging and all that's not necessarily desirable i do think that we need to reconsider our approaches to you know health and and security and work and leisure and the way we relate to the natural world we have to sort of change the story and change how we organize it's going to take trial and error of course um Anyone who's organized can tell you that it is far from easy um, and is replete with setback and failure. But I think we have a responsibility to remake this status quo, to right the wrongs of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that's it. Woo! Throw in a couple of air horns here, Dale. <laughs> Make sure they're pitched lower so that it's not horrible to listen to. No, (laughs) never do that.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, yeah! It could happen here. The only podcast... That is on right now in your ears where you can listen to us talk about things falling apart and occasionally uh, uh, more optimistic stuff. Garrison, is this one of the more optimistic stuff days? 
Not really. Um, oh, great. It, it's, thing, it's things falling cool. apart, but in a slightly amusing way. Oh, um, well, that's fine, too. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be fine. Um, so have, have, is, any, is any of y'alls familiar with uh, the Devious Licks? Vaguely, yes. yeah. yeah. So, all of all of I'm sure all of the I'm sure all of the Lick fans are going to be really excited about today's episode because the first <laughs> half will be we'll be talking about uh, all of the all of the Licks. So, for for those unfamiliar, the Devious Licks meme challenge thing started with this video by a kid who had stolen quote unquote stolen a bunch of like COVID masks from his school. And then was showing off his uh, his uh, his harvest uh, on TikTok, uh, played over you know played over a, a song or something as as you do on the TikToks. So they they posted the video with this caption: uh, "A month into school, absolutely devious lick." Um, I, I and lick I think lick just means like stealing, like like you like stole something and like that's like that is a lick. Um, I, I was so sad yeah. when I first heard about this. I, I I heard I heard someone say devious licks, and I was like, and they're like, oh, it's a TikTok channels, and I was like, oh shit, people are like walking up to like like they're gonna like lick the underside of a bridge or something, and then it was not that. And unfortunately, I was so sad. unfortunately not. Yeah, it is. It is. It is a real loss. Um. <sighs> So this this video went very very viral on TikTok very very quickly, um, mostly among kids uh, whom like their in person school had just had just started. Uh, this was you know, this thing in like late August, early September of last year. Uh, it's, you know, first with you know it, 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 the initial video, then subsequently inspired a bunch of copycat school related heists that then posted into TikToks. Uh, first with people just stealing like small, mostly low stakes things, usually inside the bathrooms. You know, stuff like toilet paper rolls, paper towel rolls, soap from soap dispensers, light bulbs. You know, like like floor tiles, uh, just like. <laughs> Just like small things, um, but after a while, the small fry was was not enough anymore. People started to get more um, uh, brazen, uh, more 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 devious, you might say. With their uh, licks, wow! With, yeah, they they were they they moved on to like full on toilet heists, um, and uh, you know, a, a electric hand dryers. They they stole a teacher's entire desk um, and a uh, a whole bathroom sink. So, Incredible. Yeah, and eventually they kind of dropped all pretense of this being heisting and just started just like destroying the bathrooms, uh, like not even stealing things anymore. Yeah, Garrison, <laughs> you and I have a friend who works at a school where this yeah. has been. We got accused of like uh, pushing disinformation when we talked about this on Worst Year, but it's like, no, we know people who work at a school that has not had functional student bathrooms yeah, in months. Happened. <laughs> so, and it's, yeah, it's it just, very it, funny. As a just 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 to clarify my opinion opinion on it very funny yes it's um yes they but yeah just just it it started it started with stealing and then just got turned into let's just destroy the bathrooms which is pretty funny <laughs> kids rock kids rock <laughs> so obviously uh schools teachers and principals were uh, s- scrambling um their confusion only upseated uh, uh, by their being upset because obviously Sounds like, like they shouldn't have allowed children to be born into a world where TikTok could exist really is on them. And, you know, 
all of the upsetness by teachers and schools only like contributed to the meme with like kids posting their principal's reactions to it you know like like people like like announcing over the intercom like like new rules about how to prevent the bathroom destruction <laughs> um schools are having to like station staff members outside of bathrooms to like to, like check and hopefully like ward off any possible destructive shenanigans um it was it was this it was it was this entire thing uh, and it got to the point where TikTok actually had to step in to kind of curb this meme. They banned the hashtag DVSlick. They took down any content that had anything to do with the trend. And this seemed to work. Um, after a few weeks, the meme kind of reached the end of its virality cycle. Uh, teachers got to breathe a sigh of relief. Maybe there would be no more smashed bathrooms or stolen desks. Oh, you fools. <laughs> you fools. <laughs> um, but uh, their calm did not last long. Uh, by the end of September, there were rumors percolating around that uh, Devious Slicks did... Yeah. Per- I got you, Garrison. Per- percolating. Per- percolating. Come on. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was it was it was it was said that the Devious Licks may not have a wooden stake through its heart, and we may have only witnessed the the first wave with something much darker lurking around the corner. On Facebook, various parent, teacher, and law enforcement groups started circulating some per uh, purported sorry started circulating some purported shenanigan plans from the kids on TikTok. There was this month by month calendar detailing two kids what sick pranks they should play on their school for the for the entire rest of the year uh and a, a few versions of this calendar were spread around but they all shared the same basic overall structure and prank ideas just some like wording and phrasing changed and the first upcoming challenge for the month of uh, october was slap a teacher <laughs> sorry this spread beyond facebook and, and including to local news Well, now another TikTok challenge getting a lot of attention tonight, and it's a violent one targeting teachers. The Nevada Joint Union Superintendent asking parents now to tell their kids not to participate in this challenge. It encourages students to actually slap their teachers. So although the smack a teacher line was what really got this thing to go viral on Facebook, uh, the the main screenshotted calendar that was being circulated, uh, the actual October challenge was listed as uh, smack a staff member on the backside. That was the, that was the actual phrasing, um, which is a little a little bizarre. Smack a staff member on the backside. Uh, no, November is uh, kiss your friend's girlfriend at school. So again, weird weird phrasing. Uh, December is deck the halls and show your balls in school halls, which is, that one was probably written by a child. Um, but then we get other stuff like January is jab a breast. Uh, so more, more sexual assault jokes. Um, February, we have mess up school signs. March is make a mess in the courtyard or cafeteria. Um, April, this one's weird. April is a uh, grab some eggs. But eggs is in quotation marks with a Z at the end. Um, May is ditch day. That's fine. Uh, June is flip off the front office. Okay, who cares? And July is spray a neighbor's fence. Wow, graffiti, scary. Um, so yeah, th- that is that is that is the calendar of challenges. Uh, some of these seem more. I mean, we talked about this a couple of months ago, and my feeling was that 
this started as something real, just like uh, legitimate gonna, kids doing oh, yeah, a thing. Gonna, and yeah, and and this this shit was where it was. It became nonsense. It was just like people sharing things that were going to anger boomers. This and, we uh, will yeah. we will get into this. Um, yeah. So yeah, as as news about the TikTok challenges spread on Facebook, uh, media orgs picked up on the trend and started shouting out headlines like "TikTok's shocking school challenges list 2021 revealed," and uh, "Devious Licks asks students via TikTok to smack a staff member." The nation's teachers are feeling burnt out. So great, great headlines there. Um, so all of that sounds so obviously very scary. Um, if, if 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 teens around the country are all united in this in this <laughs> in in this uh, planned destruction of our entire civilization that that you know we could all be brought onto the brink of uh, via teens destroying their schools. So that would be that would be kind of fun. Um, but if you stop and think about the wording of that list for a sec. You might notice some things that just seem off. Like, no Gen Z kids are saying uh, smack a staff member on the backside. That is not... Like you, you are the first member of Generation Z to say backside. Backside. (laughs) And, like, the challenge for April is grab some eggs and eggs in quotation marks with a Z at the end. Because, yeah, all of of the cool kids today use a Z at the end of words to make them sound cool. Again, it's some, like, fucking Gen X or maybe elder millennial piece of shit trying to make people angry on the internet. And he's just like, "Eh, April, what, what goes with April? April, eggs, eggs, uh-huh, Easter. excellent. Yeah, I don't know something, but no, but like all of the language feels like what 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 someone would write if they were trying to imitate what a cool '90s kid would talk like on TV. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like, a lot of people trying to write John Hughes movies. Yeah. But so, but all all this was very viral for like it was for the end of September. This was this was all massive, and we we will don't worry. I will explain why we're talking about this now because this does this this will circle back to actually current events. Um, I'm not not just talking about a September 2021 trend. This this does this does relate to stuff happening currently. Um, but yeah, like suspicious language aside, the idea that the youths are uh, purposely plotting on the TikToks to assault teachers and wreak havoc all year long uh, frightened many an adult, especially those that work in the education sector who, who might have to face the possibility of a coordinated Zoom or wrath. And, you know, the past two years had already been kind of a shit show for schools with switching to remote learning, then back to in-person. There's all all debate all the debate around masks and vaccinations and the risk of being inside around densely packed you know groups of filthy germ-ridden children. Um, plus, there's all these kids that got used to being home alone for so long, learning have to like like ha- having to learn now how to like socialize in the class environment, um, all while dealing with like the same mental trauma that we've all been dealing with around uh, around the plague. So. So just having faced the actual very real September devious licks, the, the promise of a year long TikTok wave of, of destruction uh, <laughs> obviously frightened many parents and teachers with educators on Facebook, uh, you know, starting to take this list as a very real threat with school districts, you know, issuing warnings and, and parents were, you know, informed like in mass about this very, very real, very real threat. Educators beware. That's the warning from the California Teachers Association. 
The group sent this message to educators, letting them know about a potential TikTok trend, calling for students to slap a staff member. Seminole County Schools just sent this letter to principals warning them of TikTok's October challenge, saying, quote, in the latest TikTok trend, students are asked to calmly walk up to their teachers, slap them, and then run off, making sure they capture the whole thing on camera. Okay, and we are back. So, yeah, sure enough, uh, news of teachers getting slapped began to circulate from local media into the national sphere um, alongside headlines like uh, TikTok-inspired slap-a-teacher challenge assault reported at Braintree's East Middle School. And uh, Covington police say disabled teacher injured and suspected TikTok challenge assault by student. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so there was there was there was a there was a few slapping incidents reported onto mainstream on on onto mainstream news, all all tied to the to the TikTok assault a teacher thing. Um, a, a student in Louisiana was arrested and faced felony charges, with police saying the assault was prompted by a quote prompted by a viral social media application known as TikTok. Sorry. <laughs> We've done the notorious hacker four chat again. Everything circles back. <laughs> Application known as TikTok. Um so yeah, in October there were definitely incidents of students hitting teachers. Um but so like that that in, in and of itself is not up for debate. This, this there yes. Uh but the actual scale of content spreading this list and the subsequent slapping videos on the TikTok platform is something to question. Because uh, writing, writing off of the September DV Slicks trend, almost all media, uh, police, parents, educators were, were super quick to link this list and these few teacher thwackings to the social media platform used by Gen Z, uh, the application known as TikTok. Um, and so we we have we have all this talk on the news and on Facebook, but the thing is, if you check TikTok around, like if 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 you, if you if you're actually on TikTok around this time, you wouldn't find any viral videos of teachers getting slapped, um, or anything about this TikTok list of challenges at all. It it, it wasn't actually there. Like it wasn't actually on TikTok. This this wasn't actually a thing. Uh, so you know, then you know, you might be thinking, well, maybe TikTok's doing what they did previously to to shut down the original organic DVSLix challenge. What if they're just doing this like preemptively, to taking down any content related to the list, any like corresponding hashtags, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, but when journalists asked TikTok if this was the case, they denied this, saying that we have not seen anything of this nature on our app. Um, they said the first time they the TikTok said the first time they saw the list was of screenshots of it on other websites. It was was not it was not from TikTok. It wasn't actually there. Uh, so as as more and more news circulated and blame was continuing to be put on TikTok for propagating this list of challenges and you know encouraging teacher assaults. Uh, the social media platform made a public statement addressing the issue, saying, quote, The rumored slap-a-teacher dare is an insult to educators everywhere. And while this is not a trend on TikTok, if at any point it shows up, content will be removed. So as, as much as you would search online on TikTok or, you know, wherever, you wouldn't find any evidence of this list actually being spread through TikTok at all. The, the only thing that you would find about this on TikTok is either kids reacting to news clips talking about this, or teachers on TikTok complaining about this as well. It wasn't actually a trend. Uh, the, the the list was being shared online a lot. Like it was very viral, but 
almost exclusively in Facebook groups uh, for boomers or adults or teachers or police. Uh, but people seemed real scared it's about it. It's fine to call all those groups boomers, Garrison. Okay, that good noted. Um, yeah, it's 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 like a mental ethnicity now. <laughs> <laughs> um, people people seem really scared. You know, sc- schools were scared. News media loves turning this list into like a looming a looming boogeyman. But it, it wasn't it wasn't kids actually spreading it or turning it into a challenge, which leaves you to wonder where did this even come from and how did it actually get so viral? So m- multiple and uh, multiple fully separate investigative kind of ordeals into the alleged TikTok list of challenges uh, placed its original point of virality in the hands of of wait wait for it wait for it I'm a waiting po- a police officer oh good um, so. Officer David Gomez, a, a school resource cop who runs a popular Facebook page under the banner of, uh, quote, the truth about youth, which is oh boy, pretty cool. So Gomez works at a school in Idaho. Big shocker. Um, uh-huh. And back in September, his Facebook page had over 33,000 followers. Christ. Now it has over 66,000. And he uses it as a sort of information hub for parents, educators, and concerned citizens to talk about the dangers of kids on the internet and all of that jazz. Um, you know, Gomez basically tries to be like a kind of like influencer for this whole like concerned adult corner of the internet. He 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 writes these long long posts about like school life and digital safety, touching on many topics from like how your kids are secretly buying weed and vape pens, or like how to tell if your kid is looking at pornographic materials. You know, st- st- stuff stuff of this nature. Um, like here, here's 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 a few posts from him from, from just from just a few days ago. Um, <clears throat> lots of inappropriate behaviors pushed on Snapchat. Desensitize kids to reality. Nude photos, drugs, parties, crimes, etc. <laughs> kids can uh. order almost any illegal drug and have it delivered to them on most any place on Snapchat. Ah, uh, if only. <laughs> if so, only. So he's like he's like one of these types of guy. He like you know, you know who yeah. 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 Um, God, if we only lived in that world, I would be on Snapchat so hard. I would be uh <laughs> I love I love the idea that Snapchat desensitizes kids to reality by telling them about parties. And well, I mean, any t- I, ha- I look, I have a profound negative mental health reaction whenever someone tells me about a party. So why would <laughs> why wouldn't children? So so as, as the original Devious Licks challenge was dying down near the end of September, um, on September twenty second. Officer Gomez posted this list of challenges to his thousands of followers. In the next few days, the challenge list from his page circulated around the web, prompting many nervous school emails, terrified newscasts, and ending up actually making the list of challenges go completely viral. Um, When asked about the origin of the list, he said the first place that he'd seen it is in a smaller private Facebook group for people working in drug and alcohol enforcement and education. He called it a drug recognition group. It's like a group of like cops and stuff who are like, I found this bag of leaves. What, what is it? Can, can I, can I arrest this person? It's like, it's, 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 it's these people who like, yeah, post random stuff to figure out what drugs they're looking at. Um, so he claims he first saw it in this Facebook group. 
um, but admitted that he was unsure if it had actually originated from kids or not, uh, let, let alone on TikTok. He just posted it because he thought, you know, better safe than sorry. Um, but, you know, it's it's funny because Officer Gomez's intention may just have been to spread the word about this because he thought it was an actual threat. But it turns out that he was just the one that gave it online life in the first place. <laughs> so, so yeah. But for, like, the actual origin of it, like, like for it actually came up, as, as, as best as we can tell, um, it, seems to, it seems to have stemmed from a school in California. Um, a, a principal claims that a student sent them this list, albeit a slightly more uh, vulgar version, more in line with how kids kind of talk now. The teacher then uploaded it to a teacher Facebook group. It was then shared to this drug recognition group with Officer Gomez, and then Gomez or someone ar along this process rewrote it to add the weird, like, boomer, Gen Z, like, like, like uh, 90s cool kid language. And then Gomez posted it. And then that results in like the cool kids attitude. And then it, he posts it, go, it goes viral. But there's no evidence that it was ever on TikTok, like at all. Like, <laughs> there's, there's no, like, it's not actually ever on TikTok <laughs> until the cop posts it. So the, the other funny thing is that all of these slapping incidents reported on the news, including the one that resulted in an arrest. Uh, also turns out to have nothing to do with the challenge list or TikTok. It was just a regular, like, interpersonal conflict between a student and a teacher. Because, like, that happens. Like, that happens just, like, every once in a while. Like, that... So, but it had nothing to do with TikTok, uh, ac according to the school and according to the police sure, after we had a investigation. A, a, a substitute teacher chokeslam one of the kids in my class, and we didn't even have a TikTok. We barely had the internet back then. It was a pretty good day at school. The principal had to come in and apologize. It was very fun. That that sounds great. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> so uh so yeah, like in the end, we're gonna the 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 full arc of this, right, starts in September with the actual real devious licks that 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 did that did exist. It was on TikTok, but it was just, you know, stealing stuff from bathrooms. Uh it, and it breaking takes off, bathrooms. And and yeah. and then eventually kind of just like making bathrooms into a mess. Mm -hmm. Um so, but this, this, this takes off. It's, it goes, it goes, it goes pretty, pretty viral. Then TikTok starts to crack down on it. And after like three to four weeks, the meme dies. It's, it's, you know, people, people are bored. There's too much enforcement. It's not fun. It's not fun anymore. And then we have this calendar list of challenges, right? P possibly trying to spin off of like the DV Slicks thing and glom on from the previous trend. Or it was perhaps just written as like, uh, like a non-serious joke. But the, the thing is, like, it's not actually found on TikTok, right? So even if this list was originally made by a kid, uh, it's, it was not known by other kids uh, on, on a national level, either online or in person. But where it does get visibility is through adults, and not on TikTok, but on Facebook, initially being passed around by teachers and school administrators and other adults, on, ran on the Facebook platform, and really accelerating from there, right? We have, we, have, we, we have Gomez, and then it's all over Facebook, it's all over Instagram, it's all over news articles, TV stations, and eventually does, go, eventually does get to TikTok, but not with kids talking about it, instead with teachers talking about it. Uh, but at this point, the story of the... TikTok slap a teacher challenge was just too like enticing, right? It had like enough of a grain of truth by piggybacking off of the real devious licks, but it was able to grow into this like entire false reality because there were enough ingredients for a good story, and that's where like perceptions of truth really flourish in is is good stories, um, and then 
we found out a few weeks ago um there was there was this uh, article by uh, Taylor Lawrence uh in the Washington Post that there actually may have been some kind of behind the scenes fuckery making this trend go as viral as it did um and we will we will get into that after after this after this ad break so have fun listening to these ads and then we will talk about uh the behind the scenes of making these these false online trends hello we are back. So turns out, uh, lots of lots of there's lots of lots of fuckery happening uh, to to make to make to make uh, to make narratives to make stories. Right? It's a uh, all you know. Turns out that not everything you read on the internet is true. Uh, pretty pretty shocking re- revelation here. So it came out a few weeks ago that um, uh, Facebook was actually paying one of the biggest Republican consulting firms in the country to orchestrate a national campaign to turn the public opinion uh, negatively towards TikTok. The, the campaign was, inc- it was uh, placing, it, it, it included placing like op-eds and letters to editors of like, you know, uh, major, ma- major news outlets, uh, promoting uh, false, false stories, about about like um uh, the the growth of alleged TikTok trends that actually had started on Facebook, and then you know trying to push reporters and politicians into helping them you know damage the perception of TikTok on like a nationwide level. Eventually, you know Facebook was obviously funding this because it you know TikTok is their biggest competitor at the moment. So it's a uh, it's actually pretty interesting. It's so it it's 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 with this Republican digital. A consulting firm uh, called Targeted Victory. So th- this was the thing that Facebook was actually paying for uh, to 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 prompt these false stories. Uh, Targeted Victory has been routinely working for Facebook for o- over the years. Um, you know they were they were in, involved in the 2016 congressional hearings um, around Facebook doing stuff like with like election medley stuff you know all the stuff related to like cambridge analytica they were they were had a small part to play in that kind of thing as well so they also receive a lot of republican funding um they got i think over over uh, 237 million dollars in 2020 uh according to data co- compiled by open secrets which is uh yeah it's uh that w- biggest biggest payments came from a national gop congressional committee uh, and America First Action, which is a a a, 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 a super PAC ran by pro Trump folks. So that this is this is the group that was that was doing a lot of the behind the scenes stuff to specifically tie TikTok onto 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 making it look bad to specifically make Facebook look good and push people more onto Facebook. When this article first dropped, I know Robert, you said that hey, this is a interesting interesting little thing that is probably worth talking about in terms of uh-huh. how it affects politics and social media and like the intersection thereof yeah maybe a little bit so a, a lot of a lot of the news dropped about this uh because of employees with the firm were tasked to undermine tiktok through nationwide media and lobbying campaign and then lots of their internal emails for this like effort were shared with washington post so this is this is how we kind of found out about this more recently their task was to quote get the message out that while meta like facebook is the current punching bag tiktok is the real threat especially as a foreign owned app that is number one in sharing data that young teens are using according to the director of the firm so this is that's the type of stuff they're talking about behind the scenes in terms of how they're trying to push push stuff to get 
people stopped talking about how bad Facebook is because this was also right after all of like the Facebook Breitbart stuff was happening in terms of how much Facebook pushes extremist content um, to, you know, boomers and stuff. Um, and then the other thing that they were doing was specifically trying to f- craft messaging to get uh, bills uh, passed and try to get uh, attorneys general to to focus on to focus on this to launch investigations into how like TikTok harms children and teens, um, and that part actually was successful. So, uh, you you can look at the emails talking about this plan, and then soon after there was actually a coalition of a state attorney general to launch a probe into whether TikTok is harmful to children and teens. So you can actually look at the behind the scenes stuff that they were trying to do, and then see how fast they were successful in doing this stuff. And all this also comes at the point that Facebook was, for the first time, actually losing users. And uh, as soon as TikTok was launched and got so, so much more popular, it also took down a whole bunch of users from, from Instagram, which was also owned by Facebook, obviously. So there's, there's a, 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 Facebook researchers said that teens were spending about three times as more time on TikTok than Instagram. Um, and this was, this was all part of the same kind of overall effort to both like do stuff to influence elections and politics, but also just do stuff to make kids think Facebook is cool, which <laughs> good, good luck with that one. Um, then in terms of like the devious licks stuff uh, in, in other emails that, that were, that, that were leaked, uh, we got, we got uh, targeted victory uh, people urging their partners to push uh, false stories to look, or, or, you know, stories that are sometimes tied in truth, but amplifying them, um, tying TikTok to various, like, dangerous dangerous trends, you know, in terms of, like, save the children rhetoric, right? This idea that that, that TikTok is harmful to the well-being of kids. One of the emails uh, has has a line here saying that the dream would be to get stories with headlines like "From Dances to Danger: How TikTok <laughs> Has Become the Most Harmful Social Media Space for Kids." So like, that's the type of headlines they're like trying to push. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> one of the things that they do is try to amplify negative TikTok coverage. They have this Google document titled Bad TikTok Clips, <laughs> yeah. which was shared internally and included links to dubious news stories citing TikTok as the original point of various like dangerous teen trends. Um, and they were they were trying to like take these stories and push them out through other means, you know, so on Facebook and stuff, right? To take any instance of this and boost it like inorganically, right? It's people's jobs to use social media to affect public opinion. So one trend that Target Victory uh, specifically was enhancing was the Devious Licks Challenge, uh, including the initial one to vandalize school property. Um, Through the bad uh, TikTok clips document, the firm was pushing stories about the Devious Licks Challenge in in local media across Massachusetts, Michigan, Minnesota, Rhode Island, and Washington, D.C. I do find it interesting that they have a lot of these ones closer to Washington, D.C., to specifically affect politicians. Like, they're doing stuff to amplify stuff to convince politicians specifically to start making political changes. Um, 
And this actually led uh, Senator Richard Blumenthal, uh, a, a Democrat from Connecticut, to write a letter in September calling on TikTok executives to testify in front of a Senate committee, um, saying that the app's been repeatedly misused and abused to promote behavior and actions that encourage harmful and destructive acts. So, yeah, like it, it worked. Like They're specifically targeting the type of news that politicians will see in areas that politicians live to get them to start trying to affect change around social media, specifically the social media that kids use and amplifying the social media that boomers use Facebook, which is already is like a cesspool of spreading conservative d disinformation. That's like the entire, that's the entire bit that they're trying to do here. Um, and so they were working on the original September challenge. Also in October, uh, targeted victory was working to spread the rumors of the slap a teacher TikTok challenge, which as we know was not, actually a TikTok challenge. Um, but they they were doing, uh, they were also contributing to inflating this this um, this trend, which is funny because obviously they were being paid by Facebook. Uh, they were being paid by the GOP. Um, and, you know, Facebook is the place where this actually started. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, but like, again, with every, if, if you can tie anything to like a little bit of truth, it makes whatever story you're trying to make so much more impactful right the the firm was was careful to use both like genuine concerns and then just amplify them or exaggerate them into like unfounded anxieties uh to to you know get people to start questioning the safety of these uh of these applications uh, so it's a it's a it's actually it's actually it's like a it's a pretty clever setup they they have they have going here and they've been really successful like they, it's it's like you know the the the, the october devious licks trend uh, with like this, with slap teacher was extremely, extremely, extremely success successful in terms of how they affect what is seen as truth and how and how how much news story and how much news coverage was just kind of unconsciously and just mindlessly repeating the stuff that they have heard. The other funny thing that that target targeted victory does is uh. <laughs> They they help write letters that are from concerned parents, quote unquote, that get sent out to newspapers to be published in their like letters to the editor uh, section. Yeah, um, there we go. Yeah, so they they specifically try to write op eds targeting TikTok and then place them in around the country, especially in key congressional districts. Um, on March twelfth, a letter to the editor that targeted Victory officials helped write uh, ran in the in the Denver Post. Um, the letter said it was from a concerned new parent, <laughs> and it claimed that TikTok was harmful to children's mental health, raising concerns over its like you know data privacy, and that many people suspect that uh, China is deliberately collecting behavioral data on our kids. Oh god, uh, uh, they're the, trying to hack our children's <laughs> brains. The letter also <laughs> issued support for Colorado Attorney General Phil uh, Weiser's Wise Weezers. I'm gonna say Weezer. Yep. Yep. Yep, yep. Phil Weezer's uh, choice. Famed fan founder of the band Weezer. <laughs> <laughs> they were, yeah, but they, the, the letter issued support for him, uh, including his choice to uh, join a coalition of, of attorneys general investigating TikTok's impact on American youths. So, yeah, there was a very similar letter uh, uh, drafted by Targeted Victory again that ran in, in, in other, other kind of smaller local papers throughout the country trying to link negative news stories about TikTok that targeted uh, victory had specifically sought to amplify. 
some of the letters that were getting circulated were signed by like members of the Democratic Party. They were they, they were they were signed by various politicians in terms of like you no know, trying to create this thing that looks grassroots to the spread them spread it around and be like hey we have these concerns do you want to do you endorse our concerns so then they can then make it seem way more legit than just like a concerned parent. Uh, it's it's pretty good. Um, you know, an email sent a few weeks ago. Uh, targeted victory asked their teams to be prepared to share the op-eds that you're working on right now uh colorado and iowa can you talk can you talk about the tiktok op-eds you got you 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 both you, you, you both got so they're specifically targeting districts where the senate um senate like uh, challenges are actually um more of a more more of a toss-up so specifically trying to do this whole tiktok is dangerous to the kids thing in these in these places it's uh yeah, it's uh, it's 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 pretty it's pretty fun because none of these letters, none of these op-eds, if you read them, there's no indication that Facebook is funding them. There's no indication that the GOP is funding them, um, right? It's that is the, it is the whole like astro astroturf thing, right? That is that is the entire idea is that they look they they look totally legit. So anyway, that was that was my my my, my the, the, those those were my notes in terms of the what the DV slicks and Sapper teacher thing actually was. And then how there was all this behind-the-scenes fuckery trying to inflate it, and how it's specifically getting inflated to tie into like local elections that are happening in the midterms. Um, yeah, what what thoughts what thoughts do y'all have on on these on these fun, fun little uh, disinformation uh, rackets they have they have going on? We we might do like another full episode of this at some point, but there's there's an interesting angle here where. Facebook's been sort of taking the China angle on this a lot, and it's like it, yeah, it, it comes yeah. up less in this, but yeah, you in in this they 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 founded this uh they founded this advocacy group called I think it was American Edge, where they have all these things that are like uh uh that was like them and a bunch of weapons manufacturers like founded this lobbying group, and they they keep saying things like oh uh, uh China's threatening our competitive edge, so we can't do antitrust. Uh, legislation. If we do antitrust legislation, the Russia-China alliance will like defeat the U.S. And so it, it's interesting. This like they, they're. I don't know F Facebook seems to have like. Well, okay, so so they, they have this problem where like the 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 metaverse stuff just flops, and they're oh, like, oh sure no, did. <laughs> uh -huh. oh no, we need to make money, and it's like, well, okay, so you know, there, there's the. <laughs> The, the 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 two ways to make money are you create something that people want to use and that's, no, that's hard that's, that's, that's hard. hard they did that once and then they accidentally turned it into an engine that breaks democracy and accelerates ethnic cleansings so yeah. you don't want them you don't want them trying to make another new thing yeah well, we'll be the, the, so, the other thing targeted victory was doing was specifically amplifying pro facebook content yeah about like how facebook is supporting local black owned businesses and like all all, all that sort of thing yeah yeah so you know you, you have that on the one hand where it's like yeah they're not they're not doing anything else and the the second way they you oh, that you shit. do this stuff is by, by strategic sabotage of, of your competition and this is what facebook is doing right now mm -hmm. is that they've launched basically full-on into strategic sabotage angle they've launched into this this sort of like preemptive defense stuff about yep. uh antitrust being like ah hey look at china uh if we uh yeah, if we don't have uh, tech monopolies that doing genocides, uh, China will have tech monopolies doing genocides. And it's like that's the other funny is... thing is that whenever Zuckerberg gets accused of trying to create monopolies around social media, he's always like, "But TikTok, TikTok <laughs> <Yeah>. exists." <laughs> 
but no, it's it's great because yeah, like they they like they like specifically say this. They like their quote is, "We need to get the message out that while Facebook is the current punching bag, TikTok is the real threat, especially yeah. as a foreign-owned app." Like that that is that is the actual quote. That so like yeah, they're yeah. specifically doing that exact thing. Yeah, they're, they're leaning into the xenophobia angle, and it's interesting because you you can watch them sort of pushing all of the like the the political buttons of the last few years. It's like they're 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 basically replaying like the Trump, like the Trump right stuff, right? It's like they, they figure out that, that rhetoric works. So they're doing, okay, they're doing the sort of like, uh, like they're doing sort of anti-China xenophobia. They're doing save the children. Yep. They're doing like, they're doing all of this, like uh, your kids are unsafe stuff and yeah, it's, it's working great for them. So this is, this is fun. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, this yeah. they're, they're, they're definitely trying. Yep. I mean, and, and the specific things that Targeted Victory tries to do, the the place that's funded by both Facebook and the GOP, is that they they specialize in uh, well, they they say they do they do crisis practice and corporate affairs offerings, uh, for for their clients' growing need for the issues of management and and, and executive positioning. Uh, saying that it wants to focus on efforts to uh, move toward authentic storytelling with a hyper local approach. So that that is that's all the words they use to talk about how they do grassroots disinformation. Yeah, authentic storytelling with a hyper local approach. Yeah, <laughs> faking letters from parents to local news sites who are hungry for content in order to cause a moral panic about TikTok. Yeah, I mean, on average, people trust their local news way more than they trust their national news. So Which if you they can, shouldn't, because it's they trash. Should, they should not, because it's all <laughs> ran by, like, two companies. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, but, like, they, ha- they have a lot of money. They have, they have a lot of money. It's their... It's the, they're they're one of the biggest um, re- recipients of uh, Republican campaign uh, spending. Now they're receiving money from Facebook. They have been for a while, but they're spending they they're, they're spending more money now. Uh, yeah, and I think this is a, it's really important to be skeptical of uh, online trends because turns out online trends can be pretty astroturfed. I mean, we can look right now at all of like all of like the groomer stuff, right? Online trends do not need to be organic. Uh, they it's are... like I always say, the next time you feel like you see something on Facebook or Twitter and you feel like you want to share it because it's outrageous, instead, <laughs> just go set off a bomb at a power substation, okay? Just simple, ethical behavior that'll, that, that won't play into these people's hands. I mean, and in terms of all of the stuff that, like, with Facebook trying to specifically demonize kids demonize tiktok um to influence elections like if you're interested in what trends kids are actually into just just like ask them like you could (laughs) talk to them like with like words and like with your mouth and use your like human ears uh because it turns out they will actually explain it because yeah if if just if anyone asked a kid about this list of challenges in like october they would say no, that's that's not a thing. That's that's not that seems something like adults are really interested in. But nope, that's not actually yeah. a thing. Just so, assume they're basically the same that kids always are, but with different like technology and shit. Like when I was a kid, 
in our senior class, a bunch of kids conspired to crash a car into the little pond that was on campus because it was destructive and funny. <laughs> kids like to do destructive, fu- f- funny things. Kids don't like to do whatever April egg bullshit or grab no, a teacher's like eggs, tit. That's all weird. Of the, all of the challenges that are just like sexual assault. You're like, yeah. that's actually not something that a lot of kids yeah. are into, it turns out. Uh, just like- try to think back to being in like, a, like 10th grade and would you have giggled at this? If so, it's probably probably a thing some kids have done like it's as simple as that so anyway with this is an episode we wanted to do specifically on how just like social media disinformation is trying to affect elections leading to leading leading into the midterms and then uh tomorrow we will discuss more midterm related stuff with all of this kind of stuff with with all of this like disinformation stuff tiktok and facebook stuff all kind of just like floating in the back of our minds um as we move on to talking about the midterms and why and, and and how they might you know affect uh politics going forward and you know how they might affect you know stuff around climate change stuff around different you know mini collapses all of that all that good stuff so but i think as it looks like we have we have reached the time that we need to do today so uh, I believe that does it for us this week. If you wanna, if you wanna do the social medias, because hey, after we talked about s- social media for like fifty minutes, yeah, let's 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 plug our social media, uh, mm-hmm. t- uh, Twitter and Instagram, Instagram owned by Facebook at uh, Cool Zone Media and Happen Here Pod. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, d- listen to the kids and don't believe trends. Bye. Mm-hmm. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to fifteen hundred dollars again sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and game sense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park that's 1-800-GAMBLER Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 
16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's the horror of dead generations hanging off the backs of my modern everyone society what what are we what are we doing did i start the podcast are we done great job robert so right. i'm gonna go i'm gonna go take five this is your favorite electoralism podcast it could happen Ooh. here um <laughs> the podcast uh, that says just vote about it come yeah. on you know have how you we voted yet this? can you vote a little harder you know, if if I could vote right right now, I would. I that mm-hmm. is how dedicated I am. I know that's that, we, everyone says that about you, Garrison. That you're yeah. always ready to vote. Um, <laughs> oh, we have we have we have we have we have an update on the TikTok thing. Um, which we just this this just dropped. Um, TikTok. Uh, there is now a a, a new a new a new TikTok account launched to uh, boost Biden with young voters. Um, it it already has 100 fans. Um, this this isn't a joke. This is actually <laughs> is an that actual... real, Garrison? Because yes. that sounds like like a bad, like a like a Jimmy Fallon Saturday Night Live weekend update <laughs> no, type no, joke. No, this is actually completely <laughs> real. Oh no, we're we have gonna, we have uh, go to the polls again. A government funded Biden pro Biden TikTok account has yeah. launched, and it has a hundred followers, guys. Aww. It would be funny if like. You know, like the Gravel Institute, but good. They just steered it in really radical directions. So it did start like tweeting about <laughs> Zerzan and, and the importance of destroying time. <laughs> the Biden uh, TikTok account embraces ecological sabotage. I would I would take I would take I would take government money if they paid me to do that. I'll say it. I'll if, take if, government money for a lot of reasons. If they, pay, if they paid me to make an unhinged TikTok mm-hmm. account. Mm-hmm. About how the scientists are the police, then yes, yeah. I would I would do that. That's a fun joke for four people listening to this podcast. We're gonna talk about the midterms. Yeah. So we're because, gonna count look official stance of the mostly anarchists who make this podcast. Voting is dumb, but uh it's also bad when certain things happen electorally, like a bunch of insane fascists uh winning elected office. Uh yeah. two things can be true. Especially when people are really set on killing trans people right now. Yeah, that's um, real yeah. problematic. 
Hashtag problematic things are going to ha- could happen as a result of the midterms. I think the by by far predominant media narrative is that the Democrats are heading for a shellacking. Um, now, is that actually going to happen? The short answer is nobody knows because polling. We should all be we should all be accepting at this point that polling is not good at its job generally. Um, <laughs> so heads up, no one's really sure. Uh, there are certainly re- number one. If this is a normal midterm election after a presidential election, Democrats should lose a not insubstantial amount of seats because that's yep. just usually what happens. The only time it didn't was the the midterm election right after nine eleven. And everyone was out of their minds at that point. So you you can't really factor that one into the averages. And nothing like 9-11 has really happened. Like the Yet. war in Ukraine is a is a whole thing, but it's also not I'm not I'm seeing any evidence that it's causing any kind of like political realignment or affecting support for Joe Biden in any meaningful no, way. It's every everyone's um, still pretty economy based in terms of what they're what they claim to be their yeah. biggest factors for voting. The war in Ukraine is uh, a huge deal, obviously. Um, we've talked about it a lot on on our shows, uh, but also it's it's foreigners and Americans don't care about foreigners when it comes to voting. So look, that's just a reality. As a guy who's repeatedly tried to get Americans to care about things happening in other countries, we, we don't. Um, so in the absence of anything that has caught, that could cause some sort of massive political realignment, the most likely thing historically is that the Democrats are going to lose control of one, maybe both houses of Congress um, and a modest amount of seats. Um, so if that happens, if it's kind of within historical dimensions, um, then that won't be all that weird at all. Um, if it's a huge blowout, then that's a big deal. And if the Democrats don't lose or kind of barely lose ground, then those would both be big deals for different reasons. Um, and again, no one knows what's going to happen, and no one on this podcast is going to make a prediction. We're just going to kind of try to talk about what what is, is sort of evident right now. Well, you're not allowed is, to legally make predictions, Robert. I'm I'm not allowed to legally make predictions, although I will make one prediction, which is that at some <laughs> point, at some point, we're going to see Joe Biden's whole ass. <laughs> You heard May, it here and, first. And fifty percent odds. If we see the ass, fifty percent <laughs> odds that you can see some balls. Fifty percent. That is, I, I've gone back and forth with my polling experts on this, and we're we're firm on that fifty. <laughs> coin flip, coin flip for the coin purse. You know, toss up, toss up, uh-huh. toss up for the tossing of his salad, which you might will. be why we see his butt. Anyway, you heard Harrison. it here first on Hick It Happen Here. It could, it could happen here. Mm-hmm. Great. That could happen here. It's Great. not impossible. Someone has a picture of Joe Biden's butt, right? It's out there. So, yeah. So, uh, for every midterms, um, the uh, the House has uh, has um, uh, has all their seats go up for every two years. Uh, the Senate gets gets uh, gets one third of seats up because they serve six year terms. Because we like having fun here. Um, yeah, so it's it's gonna be it's it's gonna be interesting both because yeah, I mean obvi- obviously it's most likely that definitely Republicans will be, will win back a decent a number of seats inside the inside the House and probably um, make make the divide there less extreme um, if not actually just like take the House. Also, the Senate's obviously more more of a more of a toss up because we're only yeah. at a fifty fifty stance on the Senate at the moment. 
Um, so that is definitely way more of a thing that they could totally seize. But even if they do seize it, that's not actually changing much because uh, they're not we're not we're not able to pass anything through the Senate anyway. Uh, because we sure of... aren't. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't matter <laughs> because yeah, I mean, like it 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 would only really suck if um. Republicans get extreme control of both the House and the Senate. Yes. Um, but I think that's kind of unlikely in terms of getting like total it, control. And, and then we still have executives. So, and, and yeah. it does part of why it doesn't seem so, to, super likely is that, like, in the last um, couple sets, in particularly the 2016 midterms, the Democrats lost basically all of their most vulnerable seats. And so a lot of the seats yeah. that are coming up are less vulnerable. And they're, so it would have to more be tradition- like. Yeah. And that does mean that, like, if the Democrats lose a bunch more, then again, it's a much more significant sign that we're seeing a uh, pretty pro- predict- potentially like pretty fashy political realignment uh, yeah. in in the United States. It's it again. There's not like evidence that makes me think that's particularly likely. Um, that's just what it would mean if that were to happen. And and I think probably the number one thing I would expect if there were some sort of gigantic epochal shift where the Republicans wind up with like 60% of the seats in Congress or something like that. Um, is they're going to try to impeach by like, they would have to, right. If they wound oh, up in control yep. of yeah. both houses, like they would have to try and impeach Biden they gotta just the because bit. of the rhetoric. It's the bit, you know, they got the um, yeah. which again, I don't, I'm not saying, I don't think that is particularly likely based on what we're seeing, but like, if that happens, they're going to do that. So, yeah, I mean, it's not even a prediction. That's just like, well, they've been talking about it. Because like, because like, on, on average, the president's party has lost about 30, uh, 30 house seats. Yeah. Uh, during midterms, over the course of like the last century, um, and Republicans only need to gain five seats to win the chamber. But uh, now, now gaining five seats is not the same as winning five seats. Obviously. Because yeah, um, it's a net thing. It's a net thing. Yes. Yeah. So, like the party needs to needs at least two hundred eighteen seats to win control of the house. So Republicans are actually they have to flip. They have to, they have to do the flipping. Um, and they have to flip actually a good number of them because again the seats that they do, the seats that that Democrats currently have are all like pretty firmly Democrat. Yeah. Um. So there's there is there is less toss ups. And the other thing that's kind of interesting, is that the uh, redistricting process that has been going on the past bit has seemed to kind of favor uh, favor Democrats. So oh, if, that if, will if be you, if, interesting. If, if, if you want to have a good time, uh, go go look at what go look at what the Democrats did to the Illinois map. It is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. it's like there is a district that is like mm-hmm. it starts in the like in the north in the south side of like the south side mm-hmm. of Chicago That's and the district shit. ends like literally like like nine tenths of the way down the state in like a tiny <laughs> town in southern illinois and it's like and it's really funny because like like 80 percent of what was going on there was like southern illinois like elected a nazi to the house the yeah. democrats were like how how can we well the funny thing is also so they didn't even do the optimal gerrymander because they're cowards and fools but yeah like this you know okay like the the, the maps are always constantly gerrymandered and part of the reason the democrats have been just like getting smashed for the last decade is that when they lost the 2010 election they lost control of uh like the the gerrymandering yeah and so that like fucked them for like a decade and they've yeah. gotten to a a position that is slightly better for them but you know again the, the, the like the, the important thing to actually take away here is that like basically every like every every election that happens in the US on on like for the house is rigged like before it starts like at least partially because gerrymandering yeah. is just legal and you can do it 
I mean, it's amazing to me that they're they're connecting these little rural areas to the south side of Chicago because, and I'm sure you're aware of this, Christopher. It's the baddest part of town, and and if you go there, <laughs> you just better beware of a man named Leroy Brown. Now, <clears throat> you know Leroy Brown. He stood about six foot four. Um, all those downtown ladies called him treetop lover. All the men just called him sir. You know, bad, Why? bad Leroy Why? Brown, b- baddest man in the whole damn, baddest man in the whole damn, this is important electoral stuff, Sophie. He could win. He's Great. badder than old King Kong and meaner than a junkyard dog. So, um, out of, uh, so uh, um, about 61 house races are seen to be uh, viewed as competitive out of 435. Um, but out of those 61. Again, amazing democracy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so and, and and out of those 61 only about 16 are actually kind of viewed as toss-ups at the moment uh with seven of those seats currently held by republicans yeah. eight of them being held by democrats and one new seat in the in the uh, state of colorado Ooh. um so yeah like it, it does seem like in order for republicans to really uh get more control of the house they have to actually flip more traditionally democratic uh territories so like they're kind of they have to do most of the actual like work here um, to actually get those things flipped. But again, I, I don't I don't trust Democrats' ability to be able to hold on to what they have anyway. So who knows? Yeah, Shit. I mean, it it it's it's one of those things. There's a lot of talk about like how incompetent the Democrats are, and there's a, a pretty interesting article that dropped. Oh gosh, where was it? About how millennial support. For Democrats is like at its lowest point in recent memory. Or, or oh, youth I wonder support. why. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Millennial here. It's because they don't do anything. It's because it's, they say they're going to do a number of very popular things and then do not do them. Cancel so, student but also, debt. Again, the people who gerrymandered all these districts, and as a general rule, just the the data we have on how midterms seem to go, all factors in the fact that that young people don't vote. You know. Um, yep. So the fact that the Democrats are worse than normal with youth may not actually have a huge impact on the midterms at this state, especially cons- – again, there's not as many – at least based on the polling we have, which is, again, imperfect, doesn't seem like there's a tremendous amount of super competitive districts. No, and it does seem to be the the group of people that will be the most interesting deciding factor right now is uh, boomer women seems to be the ones Christ. that are, are actually – they're going I after ha- – I don't probably be like the deciding that, factor. Garrison. Um, I don't like that boomers are allowed to vote. <laughs> Get them out of there. Get them out of there. On that note, on that note, should we take a quick little addy break? You know who uh-huh. else doesn't want you to vote? <laughs> all- <laughs> that is true, Garrison. It's, it's, it's the Washington State Patrol. The, the oligarchs who support this podcast. Oh, goodness. Uh, we're back and we're again talking about the elections in the south side of Chicago. And there's a lot of reasons to wonder how this is going to go. And I just want to point out that Leroy Brown keeps a 32 gun in his pocket for fun and a razor in his shoe, which should be factored in when you're thinking about, you know, how things might go down on election day. Thank Are thank you, you for that for that critical analysis from mm-hmm. uh, Robert Evans. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, really really on the cusp there. Um, thank you. Yeah, it's uh we are we are we are lucky to have such an academic mind on the pod. <laughs> uh, I say that a lot, but I'm I'm glad someone else is finally. <laughs> uh, should we talk uh, uh, Senate Senate seats that are potentially going to flip, even though Garrison doesn't want to? Yeah, I read the article and I didn't. I found it kind of boring, and I didn't find them to say anything super interesting. Um, but yes, we can. Uh, so one of the one of the ones we got here is in Pennsylvania. It's um, is it is that the one that's open? 
it is the one that is open. Okay. Um. So yeah, this is uh. The seat the the opened up when the Republican Senator Pat Toomey, good for him for yeah. having a funny name, uh, no, announced he that he would not be <laughs> announced that he would not be having a, he he would not be running for re-election. So so yeah, there's the lieutenant governor is 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 running in the Democratic primary and raising a good good deal of money. Um, That's cool. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a uh, yeah it's a uh, uh, Trump has a uh, Trump has a uh, has a uh, has has stepped in. Uh, to to fight between between the two the two uh, the two candidates, which we have David D- David McCormick, which is a former hedge fund manager, and his uh, Republican mm. opposer is a uh, friend of the pod, Doctor Memedos. Oh good! Oh yeah! That- yeah. <laughs> I I love that I love that I have to care about a fight between Doctor Oz and a hedge fund manager. <laughs> I'm American glad. democracy rules. Awesome. Cool. And do you want to guess who Trump endorsed between the hedge fund minister and the and the good doctor? It's got to be Dr. Oz. Yes, of course it is. Yeah, <laughs> doc- they let Dr. Oz speak at CPAC. Yeah, yes. he's hot. That's, so immediate, immediate Which is funny because the hedge fund guy specifically pl- went to Mar-a-Lago to, <laughs> to, to like help get Trump's support um, and then Trump <laughs> oh, endorsed bro. Oh, bro. the no, endorsed her good God. doctor. Was he, was, like, he like, was he like, hey, like what's your TV ratings? It's yeah. Oh, I don't know. You, you're, if you're, you, you don't have a TV, like you were not, oh, no, no, no. Donald yeah. Trump is not a dumb man. He's just a very focused one. And the only thing he is focused on is the same thing that Dr. Oz is good at, which yes. is getting buzz. Attention. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's seemed to be kind of a toss up between uh, these two Republican candidates. Both, both are both are pretty wealthy. Both are spending millions and millions and millions of dollars. Um, and it's it's it is it is expected to be the most expensive uh, race in the whole country. Because of the hedge fund guy, because of Dr. Cool. Oz, and then the, the then the the one Democrat, mm-hmm. Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, um, who seems to who is raising a lot of money for uh, on on uh, on the for the from the Democratic establishment. So yeah, um, what else? That's what that's what the metalhead, right? I don't know. I don't know. I, I want to talk about Ohio for a second because okay. there's been some stuff Ugh. out of there that is it is because it, it is also sucks. open. Yeah, so it's open, and the guy who's running on the Democratic side is Tim Ryan, who's like a weirdo, and like has sort of been a like a, on the right wing of the Democratic Party for a long time. But like, so Tim Ryan's doing this like it's being called economic populism. Oh, oh boy! Thing where oh, wait, okay, good. yeah, it's so, fun. Uh, so so uh, let, 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 let me let's, let's, let's read a quote. Shirt out of the oh. yeah. Of so so let's 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 read some uh, Ryan quotes. Uh, China, <laughs> it's definitely China. One word, China. It's us versus China. Huh. So this this is this is this, his his campaign basically okay. is what a seems, lyrical genius. What are you talking about? I mean, I, I gotta say, it seems very hinged for one thing. Yeah, super I, it, it, hinged. It's, it's, it's an interesting thing because it's like okay, so he's trying to do the like ah uh, we're gonna we're gonna do economic populism. We're talking about how China is like uh, taking jobs away from the Rust Belt. But it's also funny because like he's against Medicare for all. Like well, so am I. So like he's like he's like not like a he, he's not actually like 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 on the left in any serious way. But you know, and there's there's this whole thing like he's he's running as NAFTA, which is interesting because like you know if, in terms of economic populism like. Obama did run on that. Like Obama ran on get on on uh, being against NAFTA, and this is part of how he just like absolutely clobbered uh, uh, John McCain. But like 
you know, the Democrats never will, will literally never do anything about that. But like, yeah, it, you know, but there's 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 this whole sort of factor here where, where Ryan's big thing is he's anti-China. He's, and he's anti-China. He 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 tried to be the House Speaker multiple times. Yeah. And yeah. And, and, and uh. there's just, you know, the, the thing that's interesting about it is, is it. it, it so he, he's getting a lot of support for the like. So, so Asian American groups in Ohio were like, hey, what the fuck are you doing? And. He was just like, I, yeah, I don't care. Um, and just awesome. has kept doing it. And, and it's interesting because there's this sort of like, he, he's getting a lot of support from like Republicans for this. Like you'll, you'll, there's, there's been a lot of columns from sort of like Republican columnists who are like, well, I'm, I'm pro free trade, but also like this whole opposing China thing is good. And, and I, th- I think it's, there, there's an interesting dynamic going on here where you have this like this is a very very old tradition in in Amer- in American I guess you could call it American labor of there being this kind of like well okay so the the solution to all of our economic problems is that China's taking our jobs away I mean like you can see this like literally in the 1800s this was happening and you know what happened in the 1800s was that uh, they ethnically cleansed the entire west coast and like most mm-hmm. of the the Sunbelt states, yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, you know, a lot of states there was mining going on. They, yeah, this is like they just like ethnically cleansed all the Asian people out, and you know, this is I think worrying in a lot of ways because it's the Democrats so far haven't really gone as hard on this as they were going in twenty twenty, but this kind of stuff gets really really bad really quickly, and. You know, okay, like the 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 worst the anti Asian violence has been largely coronavirus stuff. But like, if you go back to the eighties when this exact same thing was happening with Japan, that got really really bad very quickly. People got mm-hmm. murdered. Um, yeah, a yeah, lot of so, Michael Crichton books were written with plots yeah. that are very racist now <laughs> in retrospect. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and I I think I think it's important to remind people that like. You know, like yeah, there, like there, there were a lot of jobs that got moved from the U.S. to China, and that happened because corporations were trying to find a, we're, 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 we're you know, like this, this is the thing that corporations did, not like the Chinese people. And the other part of the reason it happened was that the Chinese government fucking murdered, like, literally, oh, like just machine guns a bunch of trade unionists outside of Tiananmen, and you know that, like that, that had the effect of just like shattering whatever was sort of left of the Chinese work of organization, of the Chinese working class, and so. The factory worker in China who is making like, if they're lucky, maybe like sixteen thousand dollars a year, is not your enemy. Uh, despite what fucking Tim Ryan and all these assholes are are trying to tell you, it's that's it's just it's 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 not true. And the reason they're doing this is because they're trying to get you to not look at the people who are actually fucking stealing all of your money. So he also seems pretty yeah. pro cop. Yeah, he sucks. Oh, the Democrats are all pro cop now. We have, yeah. we have yeah. completely turned turned around on that one. Yeah, they yep. were only anti cop for eleven minutes in twenty twenty when yeah. everyone was was scared that things were going to go Minneapolis in a lot more places. Yeah, the in that eleven minutes was when Nancy Pelosi was oh, kneeling. God, that eleven minutes ruled <sighs> though, not that part of it, but that a lot part, of parts of that it. That part, that part keeps. You guys me remember up at when? Night. The, when when the CEO of Target had to come out and be like, "It's cool if people yes, loot targets." Yes, I love that. That. Yeah. that. that was maybe the peak. Uh, <laughs> you know, well, and, and I, I will say this: if 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 you if you want that back, you can do it again. You just have to you just have to burn a bunch of police stations and riot and loot things. Yep. So, yeah, we can Someone we can go back to Molotovs. It it, it, yeah. it it that that's a thing that could happen. And if it were, it could it, happen it, here. It, that's it the could bit. happen here. It, that is the bit. 
I hope that Georgia doesn't flip. Yeah, let's let's talk about let's talk about let's talk about Georgia. Um, let's talk about Georgia because yeah, we got uh, Raphael uh, Warnock, Warnock is running. Yeah, that's what I yeah is is running for his uh, first full term after winning the special election uh, last year. Um, so yeah, he is obviously trying to trying to like since since Biden barely barely won Georgia in the in the last election, trying to kind of ride off of that that energy. But Biden's approval, like everywhere nationally, but in Georgia, his approval has taken quite the nosedive, um, with like only like thirty three percent saying he they approve of Biden's performance on the job. Um, and then on the uh, on the Republican side, we got the guy leading the race is a formal uh, former NFL running back, uh, Herschel Walker. Um, so he he has he has he has Trump's endorsement. Um, so he's trying to trying to run off that, but he's he's pretty new. So it's kind of he's on. He's more he's more. Uh, he's it's it's unclear because he doesn't have a lot of political be- background. So. Who knows what's gonna what's gonna what's gonna happen there? Um, well, and it's also one of the reasons why Warnock won in twenty twenty is that while, as has been shown, people in his district aren't big fans of Biden, they just really were tired of Donald Trump. So it is kind of a question as to like, well, what is the degree to which a yeah. Trump endorsement's gonna matter a ton in this? Because the fact that they're now don't like Biden very much does not necessarily mean. They're less exhausted at the thought of a Trump type guy coming in again. So who knows? Another another race that's open is actually North Carolina, mm. um, which is which which is intriguing. Um, Why? So that's huh? Why? Well, North North Carolina's always had a pretty a reasonably prominent left. Mm-hmm. Like it gets kind of like lumped yeah. in by Democrats as like a right wing state, but it's not. I mean, there's a, a, certainly strong elements of that. There's a lot going on in North Carolina. Yeah, I mean the the person that they're they're trying to run is uh is a uh, 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 Cherry uh, Beasley, which is the first black black woman to serve as a uh, chief justice on the state supreme court. Um, so she will probably win the primary. Republicans are still uh, flip flopping between their Trump backed candidate um, and the former governor uh, Pat McCrory. Um, so it's that's that's still that's who's still reti- kind of who's a, retiring. Is it is it uh, Burr? Uh yeah, R- R- Richard Burr is retiring. Bye, uh, R- Republican Richard Burr. Bye. So, yeah, it, just, it seems like <sighs> Republicans don't really think uh, Cherry Beasley is going to be much of a threat. Um, and again, Biden's approval rating is also n- nosediving at around forty percent. Um, so it's it's the, the Democrats they can just hopefully. Hopefully, wish that there's a because of the vote is so split on the on the Republican side, if they can stoke 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 divisions there and just coast by, but they don't seem to be doing much much work in North Carolina actually in terms of trying to like gain ground. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's because again, like the primary is going to be in May, so it's there's there's enough time to get support behind one Republican candidate. So yeah. Let's see. I I don't. I think that's all of the ones that are open races. Uh, yeah. But we also got more more stuff like in like a Nevada, Wisconsin, Arizona, Florida, um, fucking Florida, Re- fucking but Rubio. I, uh, oh yeah, Flowrider won a twenty second in the Eurovision Awards representing San Marino back in twenty twenty one. 
Isn't uh-huh. it? It's Rubio's seat that he. It, it is Rubio. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that would be so. Um, that would be so fun. I would like. I do enjoy the thought of bad things happening to Mark. Oh, Rubio. that would be so fun. <laughs> yeah. Currently, Rubio is leading in the polls, but it's not. It's not. Uh, it it isn't above fifty percent. It is. Huh. So it is. It's it's pretty. It's still. It's it's close, but. I I've, I'm not gonna get let down by Florida. I refuse. You no. can't. You can't. <laughs> Never expect good things from Florida or Texas. Or Texas. Yeah. Yeah. That is that is the general rule. And never count out North Carolina. Yeah. Oh. Sure. I that uh-huh. is that is. But do is, do as a Texan do count out Texas. Look, if it happens, if it and it's good, <laughs> that that'll be lovely. But don't don't hinge your mental health on it. Oh. Well, um, do you know what you should hinge your, your mental health on? The products and services that support this podcast. That is right, Robert. You got it. That is a little bit too literal to our major advertiser, Garrison. (laughs) That's why I did it. Mm. I also hope Rubio gets kicked, Sophie. Oh, welcome back. We're talking about uh, the thing. I was just going to make threats of violence against a a, a sitting representative. but That is one of our favorite things, isn't it? That is one of our favorite things. That's why we're launching a new podcast the actionable threats against congressmen cast. Do we know anything about the person who is running against Rubio? Do they have a chance? Do they have a chance? That I is mean, a good question. I mean, it's Florida, so probably not, but because mm. you can't rely what, on Florida, as we've previously we, discussed. But do Val, we, Val, uh, Val Demings is, is, uh, is, is waging the fight against, against Rubio. Um, and uh, it, the, it looks like the funding is actually pretty... Pretty That's... pretty similar in okay. terms of both having around twenty million dollars in in funding, um, but there is a lot of other Democratic challengers. Uh, there's, but I mean, the Demings is the one that's going to do it. But there's yeah. a shocking amount of others. Like there is still like other millions of dollars getting spent on other challengers, which are not going to succeed. Again, great, great, great way to do democracy. Yeah, we really have it locked down. Um, <laughs> it is cool that Santa Claus is running for governor of Alaska. Uh, and see, they have a first past the post system. I think he's running for governor. Yeah, Santa Claus is. Yeah, there's a guy who's the mayor of the North Pole, which is a town in Alaska, who legally pr- changed his name to Santa Claus. That's funny. You know, he's a big uh, it, Bernie supporter. That is that, okay. That's pretty rad. <laughs> it is pretty dope because I I know Santa Claus has been doing more uh more acting recently. So it's, mm-hmm. it's he good has to see been, him. Yes. Uh, I I I mean, I can't wait to see the new Crashmore film. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty excited about that as well. For, vote for Santa, vote for Dunleavy, mm-hmm. vote for Santa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what do we? What do we? What do we? Other, th- other thing I wanted to mention is that um, uh, is that in terms of like, you know, the other recurring bit we've been having is uh, people thinking that elections aren't actually real. Um, <laughs> a, a fun bit. So that is a we fun have, bit. Only forty-seven percent of Republicans are confident that that the midterms will be conducted fairly and accurately. Um, so that's, that's less good. than half. That's, that's a, that. You know what that is? Is a recipe for stability. That's less than half, <laughs> compared to seventy-six percent of Democrats who think they'll be fair and and accurate. Mm. Um, yeah, but Sounds also like that's not going to be a problem. Also, uh, Republicans are more sure that everyone who wants to vote will be able to. They, they just don't think the votes will be counted. Uh, uh-huh. versus, but they think everyone who has access to voting is can do it easily. Whereas Democrats say that uh, voting access is more of an issue that actually could impact elections. Um, yeah. Which is, you know, if you actually look at stuff, is actually true. Um, well, yes. At, yeah. 
It's yeah, uh, we have we have one of the like the fact that our elections are ran by volunteers is like one of the most absolutely batshit things on earth. Yeah, it's it's low key an existential threat to everybody listening to this. Yes. Yeah, and I mean it's and, you know and, and this is one of the things I would say about sort of electoralism is that like every every single okay you probably won't hear about it that much this year because it's not a presidential election, but. Uh, Every single time there's there's a, there's an actual presidential election, there's a bunch of stories about how a bunch of people waited in lines for fucking seven hours because there weren't enough stations. They didn't set them up in the right places, and uh, nothing ever will literally will ever be done about this. This has been like, I I remember I remember stories about this when I was like ten, and it is it, it will never change. Nothing will ever be done about it. Every single time it happens, people say that they're going to do stuff about it, and they don't. And uh, yeah, so that's that's fun. Uh, so, the elections are kind of pre-rigged already. <laughs> for other fun kind of statty things to help with, to help with like trying to you know get the temperature of the room. So about uh, half of white voters, fifty-one percent, say that they would vote for a Republican candidate. Thirty-seven uh, percent say that they would vote Democrat. Uh, I know I talked with, I mentioned this briefly. But 52% of women aged 15 and up say that the economy is not working well, um, and that's going to strongly impact their their electoral choices. And this is what a lot of people are kind of looking towards in terms of indications of how they're going to vote and how results could be in in, in the end. Is like uh, you know older older women who are Gen X and uh, and um, uh, and Boomer women are seem to be kind of the people to go after at the moment. Um, so yeah, fifty fifty two percent say that they don't like the economy and it's not working well. That's up from seventy. Uh, sorry, that's up from thirty seven percent in twenty nineteen. Um, and it's, it's most of it's around like day. Most of it's around like day to day budgets. Uh, so that's 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 good. That's uh that's an interesting thing in terms of how how propaganda can be shifted around that. We know we've even seen that around like the war in Ukraine with like with like uh, gas prices and stuff. <sighs> We have, uh, in terms of back to how kind of looking at looking at uh, people of what race is generally trending towards what what thing, yeah. So over half say they do Republicans. About a third say they vote for Democrats if 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 they are white. On contrast, we got like a, a larger majority of Black voters, seventy two percent saying that they prefer the Democratic candidates, seven percent prefer Republican. Uh, Asian voters prefer Democrat over Republican. Uh, from about like a two to one ratio, which is a seven, uh, like sixty percent to thirty percent, and Hispanic voters also favor Democrats at about fifty percent, while Republicans have about twenty eight percent. Um, and the other interesting, other interesting stat pulled from a Pew Research Center is that uh, seventy percent of Republicans agree that party control of 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 the House and Senate is an important factor, but only sixty percent of Democrats believe that. <laughs> so. That means forty percent of Democrats don't think that the House and Senate's important, um, which is a little wacky. Which is also uh, down from seven points because uh, uh, in twenty eighteen, in in the same in this, under the same question, sixty seven percent of 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 Democrats said that they valued uh, House uh, House and Senate control. So that is so that that is down by almost ten percent. Uh, meanwhile, the Republican percentage points of that question have has turned upwards. Which makes sense because of you know whoever's affecting who's ever in the uh, ex- executive branch will will say oh yeah it's less important for the House and Senate right so yeah, Republicans also under like, Trump say it's it's less important now to them it's more important you know and I also think with the Democrats there's an angle of this which is like okay so we gave them power for two years and they did 
kind of nothing. Yeah, like what? It, it feels like nothing. Like <laughs> they well, actually that's that's not true. They gave they gave police more money. They gave uh they gave the Pentagon lots and lots more money. The most what? amount of money ever. Largest um, ice budget ever. Largest too, ice budget. Which was yeah. okay, but I, with global warming, we're gonna need more ice, y'all. Like, come on. Come on. Uh-huh. I'm okay. sure. That was it. That was the joke. That's the joke. T- temperature joke. Yes, I understand. It's also um, a climate refugee joke, though. Kinda. Oh, wow. double. D- mm-hmm. Double meanings. That's what we call a double entendre. You gotta, <laughs> that's how you pronounce the French, Garrison. But yeah, it's only 17% of uh, female voters age 15 older have decided who they're going to vote for in November. Um, so that is wacky. That well, a, a, with so many good choices, how could they not know? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, they're really they're really really trying to pull from there. And where do women over fifty spend a lot of time on typically? Face Facebook dot com. Um, so yeah, Facebook is Facebook and the GOP are really trying to do a lot of stuff to influence elections right now, as we detailed in our last episode around. Uh, around Facebook and the GOP funding all of the anti-TikTok stuff and funding all the pro-Facebook stuff. They really want people to be on Facebook because it turns out that's how they spread their propaganda the best. Um, and yeah, specifically with women age over 50, that's like the prime demographic for Facebook. So <sighs> neat. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that is uh, that is a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the election notes that I had because again, I am... As I, I keep up with all of the electoralisms basically every day. I wake up every morning, mm-hmm. I go to I go to that one polling website, um yep. and I, I, Five, I, I yeah. you, you text me just the word vote every single morning. <laughs> Tell the truth, you're secretly. And a always pollster. always here's what's weird, always using a different phone. Tell the truth, you're <laughs> never the same a number pollster. twice. Tell us. Mm-hmm. Tell us the truth. But well, yeah, that it, is... it's not that they're a pollster. It's that one day Nate Silver woke up with a splitting headache and Garrison leapt fully formed <laughs> out of a hole in the side of his skull. But yeah, I mean, in terms of all of like the anti-trans stuff, that it's actually worth focusing on. Obviously, the ICE stuff's really, re- really depressing in terms of Biden getting in office and giving ICE millions and millions of, of more dollars. You're like, great. Um, but, you know, it seems like if more Democrats are in office right now, it seems like that will make life slightly easier for trans people. So that's it cool. Is, it, it's, you know, it's the, the thing you always have to accept with our democracy, which is that it's foolish to say that the elections don't matter because they do. Because, for example, price caps on insulin or not passing more laws to make life a nightmare for trans people really does matter. But certain horrible things like uh, the continued dominance of extractive industries that are pushing us towards climate disaster or uh, the expansion of the carceral state and militarized policing in many different forms and the militarization of the border, that's going to keep right on trucking no matter who's in charge. And the elections don't matter for that. So far, maybe someday they will, but uh, I'd have to see it happen. You know, I do. It's possible. I, I do got good news for you, though, mm. is that the White House is launching a new TikTok campaign that already has a hundred followers after like. Well, a two why don't weeks. you why, why don't you refresh that TikTok, Garrison? Let's see how much they've gained since we started this episode. I want to see what give, they're up to. Give me a give me a sec. Because I'm curious if I've gained more followers on Twitter than they have on TikTok <laughs> at this period of time. I'm I'm checking. I'm checking. I'm checking. All right, here we go. Gonna do it. 
Um, the the account is called Building Back Together. So already pretty catchy. Um, How do they keep making these phrases worse? I know they cannot. Oh, they are actually up. So, so the the last news article I looked at, they had ninety four followers. Now they're up to a thousand and eight hundred. Oh, okay. So no, the things are going better. Garrison, I you, think, owe, you owe I Joe Biden got, an apology. Guys, I think I think we got this. I think we got it. We this is a good sign. We anyway. I mean, there's uh, a good. There's a an article about the uh, uh, the millennial whisperer or something like. Oh wait, no, sorry. It's Dim's turn to Gen Z whisperer to shore up support. It's an article from a day ago from Real Clear Politics. Um, that that's 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 fun. You know what? You know what Biden has to do. Biden has to get Mr. Beast on the job and start making those oh, no, videos. Oh, it's from Politico. And uh, then I think I think I think I think we'll have this one in the bag. Um, yeah, I mean, Garrison, just based on my knowledge of you. The main thing that Joseph Biden could do to to prop up Gen Z support is to just start airdropping hormones uh, to whoever wants them. I think airdropped hormones and airdropped uh, money it would be the way to go. Mm-hmm. Just funny. You could, I mean, you could appeal to the right by giving them HGH. There's a lot of <laughs> options here. Like, it doesn't have to be just one. Hormones Everybody likes all. some kind of hormone, you know? Hormones for all. Hormones for all. Steroids and estrogen for everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like in terms of things that that Biden could do to actually gain, to actually get stuff to do, get to like get enough support, is that he could start doing executive orders that actually do are that actually are helpful. Um, he could, they, we could, we could, they could really start rallying around their marijuana legalization bill. Mm-hmm. Um, like they're like, hey, if you vote for uh Democrats in the Senate, we can pass this thing, but we yeah. need to have more Democrats in the Senate. Like they could do that. They could campaign. They could actually do things, but they're. Not <laughs> but he could he could he could order the DEA to reschedule cannabis. That is a thing that the president can do. Um, he can do more stimulus checks. He, he can do, do a whole bunch of stuff. He could forgive a bunch of student loan that just honestly making tangible progress on federal decriminalization of marijuana and f- forgiving a bunch of student debt uh, in the time left before the midterms would be enough that it would be a lot harder for people to say Joe Biden didn't do anything. Yep. There is um, ways to counter the arguments people are going to make. So and they're they're showy should... and by God, some of them are easy. Pot is a real real free free space. I most of my family are like super right wing, and absolutely none of them support marijuana being illegal anymore. Yeah, most of them now smoke pot. Like it's like we you can make this happen, Joe. Unfortunately, the president of the United States is the man who wrote who wrote Planned Columbia. So, yeah. uh, oopsie yeah. doopsie. Oh, just parts of it. Come on. He claimed responsibility for all of it. <laughs> he sure did. He sure did. <laughs> he really did. No one talked he about sure it. Did. It's <sighs> super funny. Um, so, not about all the deaths because a lot of people died. But so that is our that's our little rundown on the yeah. midterms as it stands at this moment. There still is primaries happening. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, stuff's going to keep going. But yeah, if 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 De- if if the Democrats actually want to stay in office, which I'm not sure if they actually do, but if but if they do, they could actually just start doing things. Um, mm-hmm. Things that are not hard. Remember, that would that would that would uh that would actually you know if you want young people to vote for you, maybe you, you could give them drugs, whether that be estrogen or weed. And that might make them excited. Joe Biden's famous saying, vote out with your scrotes out. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do, do the thing. The thing. It could happen here. A yep. podcast. Garrison. I know. It's 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 sure trying to happen, isn't it? 
they're it's, really it's doing its best. You know, they're, they're really going for it. Uh, what is you know that that thing by Yates, some great beast slouching to be born, time of monsters, all that good stuff. That's what's going on here. With it could happen here. It's a podcast. Yeah. Garrison, hi. We, how are we doing? So we're talking about uh, the still ongoing and probably. Well, se- seemingly never ending. Hopefully, it'll end eventually. Uh, the well, S- S- <laughs> maybe not. Maybe hold up on that one, Garrison. <laughs> the escalating war on trans people. Um, yeah, and uh, we we've, we've brought on some uh, some people who've been uh, working to organize against the the kind of wave of bills and rhetoric and legislation targeting. Uh, trans healthcare, targeting the just existence of trans people in general. We're talking to Kat and Ada Rhodes from Tear It Up, uh, a new newer organization uh, dedicated to specifically specifically fighting against these these new bills. Hello, hey friends, I'm so glad to be here. Yes, thank you so much. Um, we've been. We we've been we've been talking for a bit because of how these bills have uh, been also a thing for a bit, and uh, we initially met up for Trans Day of Visibility. Uh, I tagged along to go to a uh, protest in Idaho, um, and then we we got on on Trans Day of Visibility. We 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 cooked up cooked up plans to sit down and have this chat. So it is it it is a little bit late, but hey, it's. It doesn't. It maybe we can have more than one day. <laughs> maybe that's a good idea. Well, we've yeah, got day a... remembrance too. So yeah. Well, hopefully we can have more than two days, and one of them not be just sad. Um, yeah. It's timely too because you know they're still attacking. Oh, did they not? Did they not stop? Nope. Nope. Mm. Our visibility did not, in fact, scare them back into their caves. I think right. this is why we need a trans day of one free murder. <laughs> Okay. I love this plan. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Really solve a few problems. Well, that's a that's a great note to uh to... I mean look, Caitlyn Jenner already used hers. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh. All right. That's gonna be my contribution for the day. <laughs> wow, this is uh this is going to really really convince all of the all of the on the edge libs who are somehow listening to this. Yeah. <laughs> they stumbled Logan. upon it trying to find a recipe. <laughs> <laughs> they thought it was tear like a scale and they were like, ah, "I was trying to work my baking scale. What if I yes, got stumbled upon?" Measure 100 grams of lentils and mm-hmm. then arm all your local trans women. Mm-hmm. 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 I would like to make a, a very, very trans cooking video in the style of David Lynch's uh, quinoa video. Of, <laughs> <laughs> but that is that is a deep cut for all of the Lynch heads out there, as uh, Lynch fans call themselves. Anyway, we're we're talking about all of all of uh, all of the bills. We're talking about um, all of the rhetoric that we've seen been specifically increasing the past like the past week uh, as of recording, probably past you know maybe a week or two as of time of release. For their yeah, like they're they're really going for it for trying to get people to do sp- like just violence against people who don't look like how they want them to look, mm-hmm. and that's that's basically what they're trying to do. And we we're gonna, we're gonna talk on a we're gonna talk on a variety of topics um, between we're gonna talk we're gonna unfortunately discuss like the groomer thing. We'll talk about all the bills that have and haven't passed and different ways that we can kind of stand up against 
this 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 thing that's really trying to take take a hold. Um, I guess I would like to start by discussing the origin of 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 tear it up and like how you know what what happened to. I mean, obviously, we we know what happened to cause this to start to cause this thing to be prompted. But like, yeah, what was what was like the specific process of being like, okay, it's it's all these things are happening. Let's actually get a group of people together to organize this thing across the country. Yeah, um, I guess I can talk about that. Uh, so, tear it up actually grew pretty directly out of a previous group called Trot in Texas, which is the Trans Resistance of Texas which started last year during their legislative session um, and then really started to grow during the special sessions in response to this constant line of attack and realizing that the techniques and the strategies being employed by a lot of the existing, more liberal-leaning groups were really focused on like backroom conversations and deals and using like procedure to defeat things instead of actually like mobilizing people against anti-trans state violence. Um, And uh, from there, we started to adapt things like louder, more obnoxious protests, a lot of stickering, flyering posters. Um, And then this year, I, so I originally started Trot, but I moved across the country and I was like, well, shit, things are just getting worse everywhere. Um, And I have a lot of friends all over the country from living in Portland and New York and Texas and Colorado and now the Midwest and reached out to sort of pull together a bunch of humans that I knew would be willing to fight back and to try and experiment with methods that we can pick up from our predecessors like ACT UP and bring more attention and mobilize people more towards taking direct action instead of relying on um, these backroom lobbying groups that I don't think really give a fuck about trans people, but love to use attacks on us to raise money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. you, there's a number of number of examples we could point to, but I think we could be more productive and just t- talk about uh, you guys instead. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, I, I really it, I, the 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 transnational thing is really a interesting point. How it's like, I know for for trans day visibility, there was org there was a or, organized kind of die-ins and protests all across the country to happen at the same day. Obviously, um, uh, there was one in Idaho, which uh, I was uh, lucky enough to join in on. Um, and yeah, but there was there was there was a lot of them, and I guess yeah, let's. On on the lead up to like as as all of these bills are escalating, um, and then there was the whole there was the whole um uh, wave of organizing against trans people for the so called like D transition day, which is really unfortunate because there actually would be a great discussion to be had there on people who choose to not continue on with transition, but it's been so <laughs> used by turfs and the gender critical movement that it's now just like a compl- it's just it's just another day for more transphobia which is really yeah. unfortunate um but we had that happening at the same time as all of, of all of these bills and then we're like okay so what 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 was what was kind of the stuff that prompted all of the um uh, the die-ins and how are you like um talking with people in all the in all the different states to kind of organize this thing together but still also like separately for each location one of the points that I'd like to come back to, like we're we're going to talk a little bit more about the the details of the you know some some of the specific legislation that has that has yeah. passed successfully into law and some of the other legislation that has not been able to pass into law. 
Um, and, you know, we're, we're drawing a contrast between ourselves and some of, uh, Tear It Up is drawing a contrast between itself and some of these more, you know, institutionalist liberal organizations. Um, not because that they, not because they can't succeed in their stated goals sometimes, right? Like the ACLU will sue on some of these things. Sure. And the result I mean, of those lawsuits may be, maybe um, something worth celebrating. And What's happening in Texas right now is a great example of that. Yeah. But that said, right, so like we, we can acknowledge that these that these more institutionalized uh, tactics can can lead to, you know, like it's a better outcome that these laws do not succeed, obviously. Um, but there's the impacts of this legislation and the discussion around this legislation is so much bigger and so much more profound than any of these individual laws, you know, specifically looking at them. Um, in terms of their like material impact on people's lives, which are already abysmally fucking awful. But like the what the the place that teared up is looking to kind of champion is the kind of hell raising that like uh, enables us to empower each other, that enables us to be visible in a way that shows people on the ground all across the country that like that we are not just a, a minority to be destroyed and ignored that we're going to fight for ourselves. We're going to fight for each other. We're going to fight for our kids. We're going to fight for our families and we're going to fight for our rights. And we're going to do it loud and as ugly as we need to, in order to make sure that trans pain is visible. Yeah. And building on that, um, the, when we look at the start of last month, March, (laughs) Uh, or I guess late uh, February, um, I think Texas was really kind of the flashpoint in a lot of the country on this, where we had a lot of these bills sort of boiling. Um, I believe there were around 70 active at that point. Um, We're now down to like the high 60s. So that's better. But um, that was really where stuff started to boil over on this. And we looked around and saw that the fight needed to focus on trans survival more than just the bills. And the bills are important to defeat because they're things trying to exterminate us. There's things that are trying to take families apart to take away the things that are helping people stay alive and to remove trans people from accessing public life. And that's going to really ruin a lot of humans, but we need to, not just look at that individual fight and remember we're fighting for a survival and we're fighting for each other and trans people as a community, we've always had to kind of rely on each other via various means, be it like Susan's place or like go back to like transvestia even. And like these systems that weren't necessarily always, and these forms of communication that weren't always focused on um, necessarily legal wins in the more traditional sense and more just like forming community, even if those communities weren't necessarily great in the case of like uh, transvestia and like some of those much more um, respectable leaning groups. Could you chat a little, talk a little bit about what transvestia and Susan's place were? Because I'm going to guess a lot of people listening are not going to be super familiar with that history. I kind of am only casually heard anything about it. Yeah, so I'm a bit of a, a queer history nerd. Um, mm-hmm. And you can learn a lot about this, actually. I have, um, can I plug my podcast? Oh, please. Absolutely. No, I mean, absolutely. <laughs> what we would like to do is provide people with an ability to learn more about this kind of stuff. So yeah, please. 
Yeah. So I'm part of the um, Totally Trans Podcast Network. Um, it's You can find us on Twitter at like Totally Trans Pod. Um, but we talk a lot about trans and queer history through the lens of like looking at it through pop culture and reading stuff into like The Little Mermaid and things. Um, so we go in a lot about Virginia Prince and Transvestia in there because I'm kind of obsessed with this human from the 1960s who is like the first Twitter trans girl. Um, she was very problematic super racist and classist. And her argument was, um, she led to a lot of 20th century confusion by saying uh, that there's like heterosexual transvestites, which are what we would now just call like trans lesbians. And then like the homosexual transsexual, which is now what we would call straight uh, trans folks. And that uh, the homosexual transsexuals are bad and should be shunned, but the heterosexual transvestite should maintain all of her previous privileges uh, and she put out this magazine called Transvestia. She famously also got in trouble for sending nudes in the mail to another trans girl across the country. Wow. Um, yeah, fascinating historical figure who kind of I mean, sucked. ahead of the curve historically in terms of sending nudes. That's that's groundbreaking. <laughs> yeah. Groundbreaking yeah. with stuff. But um, Transvestia, though, uh, did have this big cultural impact on sort of being an early trans zine. Shortly after it, we start to see drag, which um, was much more focused on like the homosexual, transsexual, and uh, more like sexually liberated takes through like the 70s. And then later, um, my favorite zine, like Gender Trash from Hell, which uh, was out of Toronto in like the 90s and was very confrontational um, about trans rights. So we sort of exist in this larger history where we're looking at how trans community has survived and formed and learning from things like STAR, um, which was the street transvestite action revolutionaries um, out of New York with Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, as well as um, ACT UP and HIV activism. And we're trying to take what we can learn from our ancestors and apply it to our current survival and play with it a little bit and update some of their tactics because I don't think traditional nonviolent protest the way it existed in the past gets attention anymore. Um, I think we need to figure out ways to be louder about it. And I'm a, I'm personally a devout pacifist. Other people aren't, and that's a-okay. Um, I'm a good Quaker girl, but um, we need to be seen. We need our lives to be seen and we need our value as humans to be seen so that we can love ourselves and each other enough to survive this horrible shit that's going to ha continue happening to us over the next couple of years. Yeah. I, I, I want to piggyback on that with, with one thought that you, um, you were talking about the sort of like the, this history of trans people drawing together to take care of each other. And, you know, I'm just thinking about how today uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene releases a video that amongst a bunch of other, just like, terrifying, awful, and occasionally super funny in its incredible stupidity. Um, things uh, that she's claiming in this video are that like trans people are basically like the, you know, the barbarian hordes that have come to destroy Western civilization. And she's, you know, she says with a straight face, like, you know, the, the late Rome and modern America are very similar. Yes. Um, uh, Both of us rely heavily on Varangian mercenaries in order to maintain yeah. <laughs> the sanctity of our borders. 
I always wanted to be a wizard, but I guess I'm a barbarian. But I, I bring that up because there is this impression of trans power that like trans yeah. people, uh, that is a result of our increased visibility. You yeah. know, like what uh, the media called 2014, the transgender tipping point, because suddenly people were like, oh, I guess Laverne Cox gets to exist. But like uh, with this increased visibility is this impression that we have this like incredible magical cosmic powers to seduce your people and ruin your civilization or whatever. And like, actually, yeah. like when I, so I, I came out in 2004, I'm 35. And like, I never imagined a world where we could even get healthcare covered. When I was like, I was like a kid organizing with Camp Trans out in the woods of Michigan. And like, I knew people who got orchiectomies in barns. I, every single trans woman I knew, everything that they knew about how to like get hormones and like manage their own um, transition and like endocrine system, uh, they learned from message boards. It was the only collective knowledge in existence that was like accessible to people. Because if you went to your doctor, unless you lived in San Francisco or New York and were particularly well connected, the response you were going to get is, uh, I don't know, are you a demon? <laughs> right? Like, yeah, no, absolutely. That's the one thing I found it um, really insightful talking to the older trans people that I know. Because I'm like, you know, I'm a, I'm a Gen Z gender queer person on hormones and it's very different because when, when when i've been talking to the my my transgender uh friends who are older it's like yeah all of these bills are just are a reaction to the increased visibility and increased well-being of trans people right it's putting yeah. it's putting things that used to be kind of just like unspoken or like obvious bigotry it's putting now that that's actually progressing it's now putting that that old bigotry into actual law because they're like oh no we don't want things to progress further so it's a it's a purposeful sliding back um so it's just like for a lot of people who are older it doesn't even seem that new it's just seemed to be it's, it's resurfacing the things that were used to be normalized are now becoming you know are becoming more obviously bigoted but they're putting that bigotry into actual law um and that's the yeah, that's the kind of interesting point is because for, there's a whole bunch of people who believe that like the transgenderisms and the gender ideology is like a point of power. It's like because it's affiliated with the left um, and the left is seen as like the power. It's it's then like it therefore you're actually punching up on it, which is of course entirely backwards. Like that none of that if you have any political analysis, you're, you'll you'll know like oh that's not how anything works. But yeah, these people in in their minds they think they're actually pushing up against like the like the powerful forces of transgenderism. Yeah, yeah you and you're like you no, we're fucking... just like punks who are poor who are trying yeah. to who are trying to get our hormone injections. Like leave us I, alone. I can't remember if it was like Tom Cotton or Matt Gates. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, one in of, a, one know, of those like guys. The, one of the like Pentagon guys, right? Yeah. Being like uh, yelling at him because, you know, our military is being destroyed because somebody uh -huh. took a class about like respecting someone's pronouns. And the guy's response is like, we can obliterate any target on the entire planet with no effort. Like, what the fuck are you talking about, man? Uh huh. There's there's that great there's that horrible great tweet about the person that runs that um four uh, chan trans account who's who is who is like this this trans person who's like a war criminal because they sell weapons. It was yes, it was a yeah. It was a wonderful tweet from a few days ago. Um, I mean, one of the, I mean, famously, a lot of companies in the arms industry like Raytheon 
have a great reputation for hiring trans people because all Raytheon cares about is you can code a missile guidance chip. That's all that matters to Raytheon. They're 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 very woke. Yeah, but it is it is it is intriguing to watch these people really justify their transphobia as a form of fighting against the system because they've somehow affiliated uh, being trans with the Democratic Party. Therefore, it's affiliated with the establishment. Therefore, it's actually this force of power, which none, none of that's none of that's true but that propaganda is shown to be very effective um the people seem really convinced by that it's 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 a story that's easy to glom onto and as long as we have a story that we can glom onto then it doesn't matter what's true or not it's it's all of the stories are, are what's actually true um so yeah that is an, an intriguing an intriguing point in terms of how yeah how how it's how stuff has changed from like transphobia 10 years ago versus transphobia now how that's resurfacing some things that used to be they used to just take shape in a slightly different form yeah well and so cat's experiences in 2004 if you fast forward a decade because i'm a little younger than cat not a lot younger than cat um uh around like 2014 2015 when i was trying to get on hormones we also had like rle the kiddos these days know what that was. The no. real, so it's real yeah, life experience. experience. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is uh, basically having to socially transition and come out and uh, do all of this under the care of a therapist and a physician for between six months and a couple of years before they'll allow you to access hormones. Okay. Um, and uh, that was kind of like the stepping stone between the previous experiments where it was just like DIY or nothing. Yeah. Um, or, it's, or impossible gatekeeping. And then now where there's like more informed consent the models. Informed consent model, which is what I, which is what I do now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and a lot of these laws are just kind of um, reiterating that weight that comes from a really like flawed place. Like that weight didn't in any way benefit anyone. It's really, it's just torturing people and trying to kind of like, um, like beat the tranny out of you, uh, yeah. make you go to the mall presenting as a woman while you feel incredibly awkward and get yelled at by some guy for like trying to buy shoes. And he's like, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, like if, if you're a nine-year-old who is experiencing precocious puberty, it is completely acceptable and no one is going to question whether or not, um, you know, prescribing puberty blockers to just make make like to make it so that you can experience puberty at a, what feels like a more appropriate developmental age, uh, cis people, politicians, the right wing, generally people agree that that is an acceptable practice. But to uh, use that same practice in order to help a trans child not die, uh, that is a sin against God and uh, leading to the decline of Western civilization. Yeah. I wish. Uh, we wish. <laughs> whatever, whatever people are like, yeah, like trans people are are leading in this degeneracy that's going to bring down Western civilization. You're like, oh wow, that sure does sound cool. For me, hormones worked so quickly, and I would having to live through like a year of trying to present in specific ways while not on hormones sounds like complete hell because it it is it, i was very surprised at how fast even like mindset things changed um how it is like they're very like hormones are very useful and very interesting and in how they and how they affect changes and being forced to 
I guess as the, the the term now is like boy moding or girl moding. This is this is this is this is what the zoomer the zoomer kids call whenever they have to like like almost like code switch gender. Um, <laughs> having having to like present in the way that you want to without these systems of hormones for a while to even be allowed to have hormones as me a zoomer now sounds like horrible <laughs> like it's literally dangerous like yeah. it's actually an incredibly dangerous thing to put people like experience to put people into and i think that like the that kind of gatekeeping uh you, you start looking at it through a more intersectional lens and like who is it hurting the most it's hurting people who don't have a shit ton of money to yeah. like re get an entirely new wardrobe that people who um, you know, people of color who are more likely to be targets of violence if they're more obviously visible and read as trans. Yep. Well, and it really artificially diminished the number of trans people and just mm. gender variants in general. Um, something that's been really interesting to watch is someone who kind of went into the pandemic as like a trans elder doing a lot of community work is uh, the quarantine trans as mm. a thing. And how much uh, you, we give everyone an opportunity to like explore themselves and be introspective for a year. And how many people are like, fuck, I'm a girl. Um, or like, I'm no gender or I'm every gender. And all of these incredibly beautiful forms of exploration that couldn't have happened if they had to go through that in like their normal social situations. If you just gave them an excuse to like do their own thing for six months. And um, yeah, RLE was a good way to keep people from being able to explore. Yeah. And it's just one way that trans people's bodily autonomy is attacked. And that's what a lot of these bills come down to as well, is it's the same thing as like anti-abortion or anti-birth yeah. control stuff. It's all just about reducing people's bodily autonomy. I mean, yeah, because like if I had to quote unquote live as a girl for a year, I would have just never gotten hormones because I don't want to live as a girl like that's not that's not what that's not what i want to even do and yeah having having all of that gatekeeping which is part 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 of what they're trying to do because i mean as much as as much as they hate people who like are you know are find more comfort inside the gen inside the more like typical gender roles they also really don't like the people who enjoy being more like overt gender freaks um and like right. like outside of that it's like so of course they're going to try to clamp down on any anything it's worth noting too just the like there's there are a few different camps um in 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 the sort of right-wing response to trans people um one of the things that i've uh learned over the years kind of looking at looking at what the alt-right is up to um uh, you know what I originally, I, I really like thought of the whole Republican Party, the whole right wing as like a single cohesive ideological unit. You know, it seemed like they were just able to like get everyone on the same page and then go at something. And if you look closely, you realize actually it's this huge ever evolving coalition of people who mostly hate each other. And if you're if you're clever, you can break people off and disrupt things. Um, there's different there's different movements, different thoughts inside of the way that people are approaching this. And you have a lot of politicians who they probably never met a trans person. They certainly probably don't have any gay friends. They're just some random suburbanite motherfuckers who know that sacrificing trans kids on the altar of political convenience will score them points with a radicalized uh, base of bigots. Um, so those people are just cynically hurting trans people yes. because it will score them some you know, pretend points. Uh, that will lead to real structural power. Yes. But there is also the evangelical community and a huge amount of the 
the deepest and scariest fervor against trans people comes out of the evangelical community. I was raised vaguely evangelical. As, and, as was I, yeah. Yeah, and like when I came out, I was definitely told I was going to hell. Like if you look at the, you look at the, where this, a lot of the incredibly, incredibly like eliminationist rhetoric yep. is coming from. And that's coming from the evangelical community who are like, it's not just that I think that from a policy perspective, this is like, we need to like retool how we're doing trans healthcare or something. Cause if people wanted to have conversations about how to make the best possible systems, like we want to have that conversation. We can, we can agree to, we can disagree about policy, but their policy is literally trans people are an army of demons who have yeah. come to win souls for Satan. And I'm like, I'm just trying to refill my prescription. Hun. Like leave me the fuck alone. No. And it also creates this really interesting looping effect of of politicians who get into anti-trans and like in like all of this kind of like anti-gay stuff to specifically win elections, right? We even saw this with like Greg Abbott doing his um like letters about about um, uh, investigating parents of trans kids specifically around his uh, primary election. Like so people definitely do are still very much getting into this specifically to win elections because they know it's a point that riles up the base. But then you also have people, because that's been going on for so long, you have people who are maybe not necessarily super evangelical, um, but who grew up around this kind of culture of politicians needing to say these things, who are now, again, even if politicians didn't really fully agree with it, they just they needed to do it to get support. But you have people who grew up around that and went into politics around that who are now just do that sincerely because because it was what they were exposed to previously. Now we have people like that who are trying to run for office for the first time who are just that extreme. Um, I think that's even a bit of what the Marjorie Taylor Greene thing is, is like someone who was exposed to extremist stuff online, who is now running for office herself and is completely sincere about all the stuff she's doing. Like she, she is a true believer in the way that some other people like Matt Gates, may not even be a true believer. He might just be doing it because it's popular, but you also have the people who are just like fully, fully believe it because it's, it's, it's influenced culture long enough that it's now a full loop of sincerity. Mm -hmm. Well, and then specifically the perception of trans people within the religious right specifically has actually shifted so much in the last decade, I guess now. I'm trying to think how old I am. Because um, <laughs> I was a student at Baylor University. In, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah. I have, uh, I, have, I, have, I, have, I have some family who used to work at Baylor. Oh, boy. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time in and around there. Yeah. In my top part of the world. <laughs> um uh yeah sickum for all of the mm -hmm. the queer ass baylor bears out there mm -hmm. but uh i became a student in 2010 and i graduated 2014 and um being queer was against the rules the whole time i was there yeah uh despite me we came out and started a student group my freshman year um but i had to face this really weird decision because in high school i had a lot of gender stuff going on a lot of sexuality stuff going on uh, and I describe myself as like a queerosexual because I'm like, I'm still figuring it out. Sure. Sometimes I'm a girl. Sometimes I'm a boy. I don't know. I'll sort this out in my 20s. And then I go to college where I thought I'd sort it out. And I was faced with this thing of like, you can either be out as queer and but you have to like present as like a cis gay man or uh, you can transition, which will be totally acceptable within this culture. But you have to go deep stealth and um, you'll just show up next year as a girl and everyone will be fine with that. And we'll all pretend it didn't happen and that you've always been a girl. Um, and that was like the standard in a lot of the 
Baylor's very upper crust religious, right? Like very yeah. privileged group of people, but was you just kind of go away and we can just pr- for a few months and we just pretend this is how it always was. And now it's much more um, inquisitional is the wrong word, but they it's like hunting trans people down uh, in a much more aggressive way where they can't just kind of be like, well, God doesn't make trash. Uh, instead, they're like, oh, God condemns you to hell, just very directly. And it's getting worse. And um, that's why Tear It Up is really important that we like start now instead of like next fall. Absolutely. Uh, because it's going to be horrible next fall. And the spring after that could be. 2024 disastrous. is going gonna, is gonna to be real grim. I would love to talk more about like uh, Tear It Up and how you approach organizing. Um, and what you're kind of hoping to both expand into and the various actions that you have done in the past few weeks. So the first Tear It Up action officially was um, the 313 rally in Austin, Texas. That was the Trans Crids Cry for Help rally um, where we had a bunch of people on the steps of the governor's mansion um, speaking and getting loud. And um, we had a, f- a few hundred people show up and that really mobilized a lot of folks in Texas that um, I know got activated from that and are still going. Uh, but while I was running and organizing that with Trot, um, and I actually flew down to Texas from Nebraska to do that, um, the various humans I'd reached out to, and I was just like, I don't have time to explain directions right now. We need to organize a die-in by the end of the month. Here's, here's what I have. I just kind of threw it at them. And um, they all ran with it. And I think that's um, the way that we need to approach this right now because we need to build this big machine because they've been building the machine against us for years. Um, And to build a machine that can rival that, we kind of need to be much more decentralized and much more agile about how we grow and how we do these actions. Um, Kat, you are one of the first humans I reached out to and I was like, yes, I would like to make a big trouble. Help. <laughs> what was that like from your side of things? Yeah, so I, I keep thinking about this from the perspective of kind of my own political motivation. So I've done various kinds of like lefty, whatever organizing for, for most of my adult life. And um, in the last, like last, I guess, February, end of February or whatever. Um, I think like probably a lot of people, especially a lot of trans people, I had like a, a couple week period of just like totally depressed doom scrolling. And then the invasion of Ukraine was happening and it's just like everything was bad all the time. Um, it still feels, still feels like everything's bad all the time, but um, I have stuff to do thanks to uh, it arose over here. Um, so what it, I, so like I said, I grew up, um, I, I was a child of the nineties I grew up in a world that I knew was utterly hostile to my existence. I knew that trans people were like, that, that to be trans was something deeply shameful and a secret that I either needed to die with or that if I came out, it would like ruin the, my, the life of all of my family. Um, until I eventually, you know, I managed to not die uh, all the way until 18, came out and then found a bunch of incredible queer people and uh, have um, been alive since then. But I... <laughs> I was shaped by that experience, by the experience of needing to survive, knowing that I had this secret all, you know, I knew when I knew in kindergarten, I like just, just knew with total certainty 
And I also knew that it was evil and bad and that I should be ashamed. Um, and there is a whole couple, there's like generation, there's like a whole generation of kids right now growing up who have, you know, come out, who have been born since 2014 and come out as tiny, tiny Holy smokes. That is, right? kind, that is kind of mind blowing. <laughs> that insane? <laughs> right. So there's like a whole, and then never mind, like kids born, born before that, but who are in high school now who are, who yeah, are coming yeah. out and like, they have existed in a world where pop culture and the sort of mass culture more generally speaking has like, there are trans people on TV and they're not just serial killers or the murder victims in an SVU story. There's legitimate representation. There is, you know, you have like the, you have people in national government and in state government exp explicitly defending trans people. Like they're, they have, been enculturated to this idea that they have some semblance of rights and that civilization that the civilization they live in doesn't want to smite them out of existence um, and those kids are watching this conversation shift and i don't know what that's like but i can tell you that i've been motivated by anger to do a lot of things and um i don't know that i've ever been quite as furious in my life as i have been the last the last couple of months. And so being drawn towards Tear It Up to me is this opportunity to like, you know, uh, I, I love the Trevor Project. I'm really glad that they exist. I'm really glad that they do the work that they do. You know, like th there's all these different orgs absolutely, who are putting out positive messaging, but it's all pretty milk toast. You know, yeah. it's like trans <clears throat> people are cool. Maybe Good. we should, maybe we should Please give live. all the, we should give all the tender queers a baseball bat. Maybe that would be a, a more useful. <laughs> Right, and Thing I'm like, there needs to be space for like, they're fucking trying to kill you. Hey, 13-year-old, yep. yeah. they are coming for you. This world is unsafe. And yep. I need you to know that you have somewhere to run to, that there are adults in the world who will keep you safe, who will show up for you, who are going to go and raise a bunch of hell, make a bunch of noise, do a graffiti, put up some posters, go and you know get ourselves in trouble on the steps of the capitals all across the country. So that those kids in high school right now who are feeling like the entire fucking universe is dissolving around them into yeah. a bottomless sea of fear and hatred that like there's other people out there. If you're in Idaho, if you're if you were a kid who's growing up in northern Idaho, like there is other people out there. Yeah. You just have well, to get free. And we're specifically so our first actions, we specifically targeted these states that tend to be ignored by um Sort of like the the mainstream liberal media. I'm trying to say that without sounding like a wackadoodle, but That's fine. We're, I'm we're, here, so we're, it's fine. We're fully past that point. <laughs> Great, cool. Uh, I have to like be professorial or we, some we, shit. We, I don't we know. We opened this show with a joke about Caitlyn Jenner killing somebody. That's true. We're fine. It is true um, that that happened. Oh, we. I know. Is, yeah. I know. Um, but yeah, like the mainstream liberal media doesn't give a fuck about Iowa or Idaho, and frankly, I've since I've lived all over the country and been involved in queer activism for like over a decade, I have friends all over and a lot of the um, more higher up folks in established orgs on the coasts and in big cities look at what happens in like Iowa and Idaho and Texas and Florida. And they're like, oh no, this is a sign of what's to come and not this affects a quarter of the country. It's, it's already this, happening. Yeah, it's happened. <laughs> Yeah, it's not, it could happen here. It's happened already. And we yes. need to fight for these kids desperately because their lives are at risk in so many ways right now. They're legally imperiled. The things that were giving them hope for life are being taken away. And 
a lot of these laws most affect the kids that have supportive families, but we need to fight for the kids that don't too and make sure that they know that like, we see you in Iowa and we're going to go do something melodramatic and cover ourselves in fake blood and lay on the steps of the Capitol in the, in the state that you live in. So you can see that like your feelings are being externalized and hopefully that'll move you to knowing that like other people are going through this too. And hopefully other people will see what's happening and it'll move them to action to protect those kids. Um, And it'll give you a space to start building community and building connections for other trans people and other people in your area who want to help keep you alive. Exactly. Um, And that's really the next step in tear it up is uh, this next month. I want to have us focus a bit more on a little community building and community events, which has always been a big part of my strategy with um, previous organizing is big, loud protests followed by a pizza party. Um, Or we did a great picnic in Austin after the legislative sessions last year, where we had a bunch of people show up and made a lot of good connections. Um, We had a lot of the little trans kiddos there. And um, some photos that were taken there were then used as like the headline, like the the cover photos for like all these articles about the kids being attacked. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that the, the, we, we pulled off our sort of first coordinated national set of actions. The, the model that we're, that we're looking at is groups like ACT UP. So more of a, a sort of decentralized national network of um, folks who are all working together to be sort of power amplifiers to like share resources, share, share tools, make sure that, you know, everyone has what they need and has backup in case anything gets out of hand, wherever they're, whatever state they're in, whatever city they're in. Um, And that coalition building or like the community building part is such a, is such an incredibly important factor. Like I, so I was coordinating, I was working on the event to have happen in Boise. And, you know, one of the major things that I, that I ran into reaching out to all these different organizations is like, I mean, they've been at war for a, a long time and they have like, there are literally militia groups hunting anyone who shows up at a BLM rally in Boise. Yep. Um, when I talked to, you know, some of the like executive directors of like LGBTQ oriented nonprofits in Boise, they were like, Hey, I'm really, it's really cool that you're doing this, but I, we cannot send our kids. We like, I, we can't participate in this because we don't know you. And we don't know what's going to happen. And this is like this. You need to understand that this scene is like not safe. Totally fair. <laughs> yeah, so totally fair. And so I, like, I think a big part of this next step is, is is deepening those connections, you know, showing people that like we will show up. We are accountable. We are looking to be partners for long term action for long term struggle. And one of the things that is really cool about tear it up that I didn't expect because I am old. So my networking has always been phone trees um, and literally just like calling people out and being like, you call these three people um, and getting people out for actions. Uh, For tear it up, we have these amazing humans at building like online communities on discord, which makes me feel simultaneously like 20,000 years old. And also like the kids, they're all right. They know how to do the trouble. Um, and we're trying to not just build, do this traditional coalition building that I've been doing for a long time and making all these connections, but trying to build not just like a physical community, but an online community to stitch these physical communities together. Because if you're in like 
middle of nowhere, Texas, you can see what's happening in Austin, but you can't always like physically make it there. So it's good to know that like, these are my humans and they're fighting for me and I can be in the loop and get involved. Um, and our long-term strategy with that is to connect people like um, the Trevor project. We are, I, I love a lot of the humans there actually. And like trans lifeline in these groups, cause they, yeah. um, and all these other like national groups that raise a lot of money, but they're actually not allowed to raise a lot of trouble because of like their tax status and all these things is like, uh, the HRC like can't do a trouble because it'll look bad for them and they care about those sorts of things. But we can connect those people with these young activists that want to like go stir up shit and cause trouble and need to like let out that scream. Um, mm-hmm. And even if we can't defeat the laws in the moment, letting out that scream is a communal good. It lets people feel seen and it lets people know I need help right now and shouting and crying and a gnashing of teeth and rending of hair and clothes is objectively good. Actually, we need people to come together and we need people to see our suffering and we need people to be moved to loving each other and helping each other. And that's, um, how that's how we'll survive. Right. If we achieve nothing beyond catharsis, then we've achieved something. Yeah. Um, I, I loved your point about the online community component of things because I feel like so much of trans focused online community is like, uh, you know, do I look okay in this outfit? Or like, hey, we're all fans of the same like anime or yep. something, <laughs> yes. right? Like, it, they're all they're, they're these very specific kind of projects, and there there's not. I don't feel like there's a lot of spaces that are like. Hey, this is like the war room. <laughs> like, we, I mean, not that we can't talk about bullshit, but like the f- entire focus of this space is to connect as many trans people as possible so we can amplify our power together um, and, you know, begin to even remotely approximate the boogeyman that fucking Marjorie Taylor Greene imagines us to be, right? Yeah. Like, Uh, Well, we need to become like the transsexual menace, which is um, another protest group that I love from the 90s where they create this iconography around like, oh, we are the transsexual menace. And then it's a bunch of like very nice people. Like, like, yes, like very like normal looking folks. Yeah. um, But I think we need to reclaim that and take it in another direction. And we need to not be menacing in, in a like, we need to be a good menace. We need to be a bit of an anti-hero for the trans community. And we need to do fucking trouble. And we need to cause problems for people. And frankly, I think um, too many politicians get to go to bed at night, not listening to people call them motherfuckers on a megaphone. And too many people get to have a nice lunch at their favorite restaurant without that being disrupted and having uh, things shouted at them. I think we need to become the menace that we need to be to survive in this moment. I uh, concur with this project, and uh, <laughs> that, uh, yes, uh, I, I concur with this, and um, enjoy enjoy uh, participating in things that lead to those outcomes, uh, because it is it's a because they want us dead anyway. Like that's that's that is that is what they're doing. That's what they're complacent with. Um, I think it is also just an, an important to, thing to note that. Um, in terms of like good news, like not all of these bills are passing. Like on on this show, we've talked a lot yep. about the bills that have passed. We have talked about all the stuff that has been going on, but there is 
not 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 all of the, not all of them are going through and that is an important thing to talk about it doesn't mean the fight's over because they're gonna try again <laughs> um yeah but that is the other thing that i think is worth is 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 worth mentioning and you know, every, states from you know florida to idaho to uh, washington utah virginia like these there is not there is stuff that is getting blocked um uh, or at least not going through and yeah there's a lesson that needs to be learned from how the right operates in this, because what they did for years was oppose equal rights, was oppose things in a variety of ways, socially and through legislation that failed. And it was fail, 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 fail for a long time until they started to succeed. And part of why they succeeded is because they were continuously building a wide ranging and powerful machine to push this stuff through, learning from their failures, grabbing more power, getting better at messaging. And like that is ultimately the same attitude needs to be had. Like when when one of these laws gets struck down, it's not a sign that the fight's been won. It's a sign um to keep pushing. Like it's this kind of thing where you have to you have to pay attention to the way they built this over the course of really 30 or 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um because it has to be done something a counter a counterweight a, a machine capable of of applying pr- equal pressure in the opposite direction has to be built and it has to be built very quickly yeah. well and nine out of the nine out of ten of these bills die so nearly yeah. 270 i think it's 264 is the actual count of how many anti-trans bills have been proposed in the last two years since the last election uh and only 27 have become law so they're really just playing a numbers game, right? They're just forcing it through. Um, And they're not going to stop. And we, in Texas, it was so hard last year because I remember the last day of the legislative session, we were all there until midnight and cheered so hard when it was done. And we're like, this bill can't come back. And then we faced special session followed by special sessions followed by special session where they're like, we are pushing through this trans legislation. And the war is not going to stop. We, we, we're maybe going to, we're going to win a lot of battles. We're going to win the majority of battles, but they're not playing it to win those individual fights. They're playing to eventually exterminate us. And they're really gaining a lot of ground and we're way behind on building our machine to fight it. And this is all happening in the context of, you know, a, a very, very explicit mask off movement to essentially destroy American democracy and replace Mm -hmm. it with Christian fascism, right? And we are the scapegoat. We are the enemy that they are currently identifying for elimination, right? So like, it's, you know, for them, they're like, I can score some points if I encourage this trans kid to kill themselves, right? Um, And for us, it's like an existential threat that we may be watching the United States descend into you know, an irreversible chasm of authoritarianism and violence. Uh, And, you know, that's going to be bad for trans people, too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Very, I love, very understated. How can, how can, uh, if people are interested in uh, Tear It Up and what they're doing, how can people find out more info online about how to keep up with stuff and um, and what what y'all do? So I think uh, the the best place to, I guess, get little updates um, is 
the Twitter, which is at teardup.org on Twitter. Um, and then additionally, we have our website, uh, which is www.teardup.org. Yes. And yes, good. Um, and then if you come and get involved and uh, you can get invited to our Discord, we're trying to grow that out a little slowly and stick with folks that we know are getting involved in the fight while we sort of build the initial foundation of this. Uh, but that's the place to find us right now. Twitter, Instagram as well. We're also teared up, uh, teared up org on Instagram. And we technically have a Facebook page, but who the fuck uses Facebook? I mean, actually, so our Facebook, we won't be posting a lot of stuff, but a lot of our events will go through Facebook because in a lot of the Midwest and the South, a lot of people still use Facebook, which is probably bad. Turns out that's not helping, I think. Um, not a but good those are look. the places. Go find us. Um, and then come get involved. We're going to be doing a lot more. We've sort of been on a break for a week because we did a shit ton of events last month all yeah. at once and kind of needed a week off. But starting next week, we're going to be posting a lot and organizing and pulling together some community and social events and some more protests. Show up. And show even up if things. you don't want to... Even if you don't want to join join the organization specifically, if you're a cis ally who's listening to this and you're like, this sucks, I hate it, I'd like to do something. Um, we'll we're gonna have things like, you know, postering, like postering resources and stickers and all kinds of stuff that you can that you can grab and like just go paint the town. Yeah. Yeah. Let it, let it let it be known that trans people won't be erased, that we are fighting back. We're a very pro-graffiti organization. Um, please bully your local politicians. And uh, sticker every service surface you can. And uh, get get some paint pens. I think I think I'll do an upcoming episode on how to make uh, or how to do wheat pasting. As oh a, yeah, as a, as, a, as a fun as as some fun uh, uh, content for you for you fans of content out there. Uh, but yes, uh, follow follow the tear it up account on the Twitters. That's how I've been mostly keeping up with it. Uh, besides just asking people because I know who they are. Um, but the Twitter, the Twitter is definitely a good, a good resource. Um, yeah, I guess any, any kind of any other, any other thoughts or notes that you would like to, to add before we, before we wrap up here. Can I say fuck Greg Abbott? Can we all just yes. say fuck Greg <laughs> Abbott? Fuck Greg Abbott. Fuck or, that motherfucker. Or, or, or um, no, also actually, fuck Ivy. Uh, also, um, yeah, fuck, fuck lots of governors. Fuck a lot of the governors, not most, most of them. Uh, I think the, the vast majority of governors, uh, should go fuck themselves and, um, I'll see them in hell. Yeah. 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 Um, that's a good, oh, uh, plug your, plug your history podcast because queer history sounds like a great thing that people should learn more about. Yeah. Uh, well, so it's the, the totally trans podcast network. Um, we might also come up as totally trans searching for the trans canon. Uh, we were originally just the one show where we talked about pop culture and history. It was me and uh, writer Henry Jardina. And uh, now we have a, a slate of shows that we do all on the same feed. Um, one that talks about comics, one that talks about history that I love uh, that the playwright Katie Coleman does. Um, uh, called Our Sacred History. And then we have, we just started the newest season of Totally Trans Searching for the Trans Canon, where we're talking about finding m- lessons from history and queer culture and pop culture. Lovely. Find it. Yeah. All right. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, buy some paint pens. Uh, mm. uh, show up to actions if you can. Um, and learn to make some trouble. Yeah. Also, megaphones are only $40 from Harbor mm. Freight. Just saying. You can get <laughs> yeah. really loud, really cheap. And it's generally legal to shout at people from outside their homes. <laughs> Although not, not always. That can get you in some trouble, but not bad hey, trouble necessarily. Check your local sound ordinances yeah, no, yeah, exactly. and bring a volume meter and really just amplify yourself just to that level and learn how to edit audio Yeah. so you can really just dial it in. Find a good um, lawyer and consult with them first. Yes. Also, yeah. uh, personally, I would like to say force femme uh, all anti-trans politicians who say that you can be peer pressured into transitioning. Um, <laughs> I am personally trying to force fem Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. It hasn't worked yet, <laughs> but he's very insistent it will work eventually. So I do feel like the right way to pursue that is just by deregulation and then poisoning the water supply. <laughs> well, yeah. that well, that does it for okay. us today. Um, <laughs> Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com sources. Thanks for listening. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career and here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.